on air for Vampire Racing Radio. It's 2023 and our first NASCAR race review of the year. Uh, this week we are reviewing the races, the season opening races at Daytona International Raceway, and we'll have Hot Topic Sound Off at 10 o'clock tonight. Joining me for our show is our co-host for tonight, Jay Huseman. Welcome to the show, Jay. Thank you, Sharon. I know we did the podcast last week as the preview into Daytona uh, to come out and be a part of the first review show of the year. I'm so appreciative and excited. Uh, I know we got some others that are excited when it comes to hot topics going to be with us later tonight. Big, big show as we kick off the 2023 season for NASCAR. Absolutely. We're going to start off, though, we're going to talk about some short track racing and any of the news that's out there for, for short tracks uh racing and dirt racing. Uh, then we'll review the Arkham Menard Series season opener at Daytona International Speedway. And the winner of that race was none other than Greg Van Alst, uh, and he drives the number 35 Arca Chevy. Uh, we're going to listen to the media interview that they had with Greg uh, after that big win uh, for him and his team. Uh, at the top of the, That's at the top of the hour. Then uh, we're going to review the NASCAR Truck Series season opener at Daytona, and following that we'll review both the NASCAR Xfinity and the Cup Series season openers at Daytona. As we mentioned earlier, 10 o'clock is our Hot Topic Sound Off, and joining us for the uh, Hot Topic Conversation tonight will be uh, Andy Lasky as well as Mike Orzel. So that should be a lot of fun. Well, I chatted with them a lot over the weekend throughout some of the races. So, like I said, they are definitely eager to get back and talk racing as well. I know Mike was on the uh, preview show, and he couldn't be on uh, that, but definitely so excited. As as we talk about with Daytona, the the energy that just builds up going into that race, the fan for racing crew has all that energy built up just to go back to talking about racing. (laughs) That is the truth. Okay, I sent you a few news and notes on dirt and short track racing uh, of some things that have happened uh, uh, very recently in both of those worlds. Uh, We'll start with, uh, we'll go every other one, I guess. Uh, The World of Outlaws Late Model Series has its 100th series winner. That person is Hudson O'Neill. He prevailed in a strong race, while Tim McCready clinched the big Gator Championship at Volusia, Speedway Park. Some great, great racing down there at Volusia Speedway Park. Another one, though, was Bobby Pierce as he stole a victory from Brandon Overton with a last lap pass uh, earlier in the week. Uh, another one from World of Outlaws. Some great racing going on down there in Florida, and they also had some great racing out in Arizona in January. So keep an eye on that dirt track stuff. From USAC Media, despite a mid-race half-spin, Brady Bacon scored a Thursday win at Winter Dirt Games to become the third all-time USAC National Sprint Cars feature victory wins list. So uh, that was a huge win for Brady Bacon. It was indeed. And another one uh, in the, on the World Outlaws side, go to worldoutlaws.com. This with the Sprint Cars. Craig Kinzer, leaning on his passion to drive. If you're familiar with sprint cars, Kinzer, a very popular name. Uh, he did some NASCAR stuff as well, Steve Kinzer. But Craig Kinzer uh, learning to dr- lean on his passion to drive him forward this year with the World Outlaws. 
And then Tyler Courtney picked up an all-star circuit of champions victory at East Bay's Raceway Park this weekend. So that was a huge win uh, for him. He followed and that he followed up, that so up with a second win. <laughs> there you go. Picked up two of them. Now, it took three. We were talking about two there. It took three power plants in a Herculean effort. But Kyle Cummins scored a victory at Bubba Raceway Park's Winter Dirt Games. Uh, you can check that out under the USAC media. Okay, moving on to the short track world. Casey Roddick uh, won the World of Series of Asphalt title in the super late model class, but did so amid some ruffled feathers with his rivals. You can read about that at Short Track Scene. Uh, Matt Weaver uh, wrote that article. And uh, we've talked about that World of Asphalt uh, series that takes place all week long down at New Smyrna Speedway. Big, big event. It was and delivered in many different ways. In the pro late model action, it was Ryan Luza that won the final battle with Connor Jones as he prevailed in that war. And then Matt Hirschman was crowned the World Series of Asphalt Champion in the tour-type modified action after the finale was rained out. So too bad that that happened, but uh, I'm glad to see Matt Hirschman be crowned that champion. Well, that one is no surprise, uh, one that might be a little bit, but uh, becoming a regular thing, and that's NASCAR ace William Byron, as he picked up another victory in the Clyde Hart Memorial 100. Uh, he had already picked up a couple last week as we headed into Daytona. Yes, indeed. And then 16-year-old prospect Katie Hedinger made history as the first woman to win a pro late model feature in the World Series uh, that last week out there at New Smyrna. So congratulations to Katie Henninger. And another one here you can check out, Matt Weaver at Short Track Scene, is the Cars Tour Touring 12 for 2023 has been revealed. So go check that out, as we'll cover that more throughout the year this year, I'm sure. Yes, indeed. And I don't know, um, that that's there's a lot going on there. Uh, we always refer fans uh, to also check out Racing America. They have uh, great videos there of highlights from some of the races that took place this weekend, including the unofficial results from all of the New Sperno World Series Night 9, and, and I think there were 10 nights of racing out there, so you can watch for all of those results at uh, Racing America. And then Sawalich wins the Orange Blossom. Roderick claims the title in a tense finale. So uh, that was pretty exciting this weekend as well. Well, and you get that when it comes to short track racing, uh, all racing in general, but especially on the short track. I know we got some uh, tensions uh, from Daytona on the high-speed uh, races as well, but your short track racing definitely provides that bump and grind and hurt feelings uh, after the fact. Absolutely. Jeremy Doss, last year we talked about Derek Thorne making his way back east to race a lot of these races this year. Jeremy Doss from Bakersfield, California, is planning to race in the Rattler 250 at South Alabama Speedway this year. So watch for that later this season. It will happen in March. And that's what some of these events that are growing, I know we talk a lot about the Snowball Derby, and that is the, the top level. 
but there's a lot of these other events, especially here on the east side, uh, some even out on the west side that drivers head out that way out at Irwindale, but are really building in their prestige. And like you mentioned, drawing drivers from all across the country. Uh, can't come any further here than California. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, moving over to flow racing, uh, there is the race of the week uh, featured here with a video. Sweet Manufacturing Race of the Week, King of the 360s Prelim Showdown. Uh, that's going to be at East Bay Raceway Park. Uh, and Friday is preliminary, uh, the preliminary night features. So uh, check out that coming up. And if you haven't seen the Arkham Menard Series Daytona 200, they have the full replay over at Flow Racings. So you can check that out as well. You don't have to wait for the delayed broadcast. Well, I was going to say, somebody there at Flow Racing has a tough job to pick out the race of the week to highlight uh, with the amount of coverage they have and racing that they cover. Uh, I'd hate to be in that in that uh, chair to fill that spot of picking out the race of the week to cover because they do such a great job with covering all racing. They really do, and it's, uh, it's uh, really fun to come over to Flow Racing and Racing America uh, for that matter. Uh, over at Flow Racing, they also do the crew, crew diaries. Uh, this is episode number three, RTJ heads to East Bay. So uh, RTJ and SSI Motorsports, episode three. And that's always fun, too, because uh, you get to see the race from a very different perspective. And that is something that has evolved uh, as we've gotten into the streaming platforms like this, that they have that capability. Uh, we've seen it with some different drivers at the NASCAR level, but to follow a team or a driver or crew, um, I think is really cool to watch and understand. You get a more inside view of that and really understand what these teams go through. Um, it's not just about showing up and racing on Sunday or Saturday. No, it's not. And if you want to get a recap after the checkers, uh, breaking down the final night at New Smyrna, uh, Flow Racing's Brandon Paul and Matthew Dillner uh, break down that final night of the 57th World Series of Asphalt Car Racing at New Smyrna Speedway. Uh, those are all videos you can check out over at uh, flowracing.com and uh, really recommend becoming a member of uh, both of these websites because you can get a lot of racing action. Uh, as members, it's really you get a big bang for your buck at both websites. Okay, uh, let's go ahead. I thought you might have something else to say there, Jay. Actually, actually, I did, but I was still on mute. Uh, talking about oh, subscribing, okay. there. Got to be careful about that. If you're a race fan like me and, and really into it. You get that subscription, and there's unlimited stuff to watch and listen to. You got to be careful. You still got to remember. You got to sleep, and you got to eat. Got to have a, jo- <laughs> a good job. So just be careful with it. All right. <laughs> yeah, there there is a lot uh, available to our race fans, and that, what I love about it is we're talking the grassroots racing uh, that you can see from all over the country. So uh, definitely uh, a fun uh, avenue to have. Uh, both at Flow Racing and uh, Racing America. Both websites do a really, really good job of covering the racing world on dirt, uh, the sprint cars, the USAC series. I mean, 
the local track racing uh, in your neck of the woods. You can watch it right there at either one of those websites. So I think it's fantastic. I'm kind of nursing a uh, head cold here today. I apologize for that. Uh, I've had um, I've, I've had a really really busy uh, off season, and I think it all caught up with me this weekend. So <clears throat> anyway, so I apologize. Um, let's go ahead and move on. Jay, over to the Arkham and Art series because that was huge. And I mentioned that you can watch that full race replay over at flowracing.com. If uh, you missed the actual race, I would recommend that you check this out because Greg Van Alts scores one for the underdogs at Daytona. Uh, It's a name that's long been associated with track racing, short track racing, uh, but he's raced the Arkham and Art Series, I think, for the last two seasons. This is his third season uh, racing in the Arkham and Art Series. And to be able to start out your season at one of the biggest venues of the year, Daytona International Raceway, and win that race, it was huge. This This is a he owns his own team. It's not like he's got 30 or 40 people uh, working for him. It's more like two or three people uh, working for him. And for him to compete with Joe Gibbs Racing and uh, some of the Venturini Racing, some of these bigger teams, this was a huge, huge accomplishment. It was, and I was super excited to see that, for him to win that. I know he's a regular here on Fan for Racing. Hopefully we can get him on here uh, live on the show uh, within the next couple of weeks uh, as he does his regular visit. But not just that yeah. hearing from him. Some of the articles that covered him going into the race, talking about his working to get sponsorship. You said it's a cell phone team. His own company obviously does some of the funding, but he really needed more help and got it. And I think he's going to get a lot more coming out of Daytona because uh, he showed what can happen <laughs> when he gets it. Yes, indeed. And I guess he kind of went into it with the mindset that I'm I'm coming home with the steering wheel or a waist or the trophy. And he decided uh, he got the trophy. So he kind of had a, the mindset for going in there and winning this week. And I think that's what it takes sometimes at some of these venues. It does, and I know Daytona is one of those, and we saw it as we'll cover the race here. Uh, things happen outside your control. Uh, you know, you always go in there with the maximum optimism, um, but luck's got to fall a little bit your way, stay out of other people's stuff. But uh, Greg did a great job of that, and, and then to, to seal the deal and come away with the victory, his post-race interview, I mean, I think it was only like three three to five seconds that they got to show there before, the, before coverage ended, but it was worth it because he was just, as you said, that was one for the guys that don't think they ought to be there, that underdog team. Yes, I love that comment when he got out of the racetrack. He says, I'm not supposed to be here. But uh, he deserves to be there for all the hard work that he put into that. Um, And uh, for those who may not know, uh, Greg Van Alts is a CRA Super Series uh, champion, and that enabled him to participate in NASCAR's Road to Daytona program before starting his Arkham Menard Series team two years later with the goal of representing short-track veterans on a larger stage. So I think he did a great job of doing that uh, this weekend. 
Um, and uh, he got his tri- uh, Daytona trophy through a combination of both luck and patience because he had to survive a couple of incidents uh, throughout the race in order to uh, make it to the end. And that's all part of it, and you mentioned it. it it's not a hired crew. It's not a, a full team, full time. It is friends helping out, you know. I mean, that's one of the things yeah. I covered uh, during the race. For for that, for a team like that to succeed at that level, I, I, it's just tremendous, and I absolutely love it. I know Van Alt said that when they tested back in January at Daytona, he had a good feeling then. And, in fact, he asked his wife to come to the track. I guess the previous uh, years that he's raced at Daytona, she hasn't made the trip with him. And this year he said – he asked her to come along because he just had a feeling that things were going to work out for him, and it certainly did. It was nice to have her there uh, to celebrate that victory with him. I'm sure it was, and, and that's one of those, of to, that whole atmosphere, that feeling for, for the team, for the family, um, that, you know, again, it's not just the driver. If you watch some of these, as you say, follow the team, uh, the amount that family members and friends put into it as well, uh, not just the driver. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge effort, uh, a team effort uh, from all venues, uh, both your home life as well as your work life, in order to make this happen. Okay, let's go down the uh, unofficial race results. Uh, the, of course, the first race of the season, the points are going to be pretty much the same. Uh, but Greg Van Oltz, as we've been covering, was the race winner here. Connor Mosack in the number 18 Toyota finished in second place, followed by Sean Core driving the number 8 Chevrolet. LeVar Scott from Rev Racing driving the 02 Chevrolet. Mandy Chick uh, driving the number 74 from the Holman Institute of Technology Chevrolet, Amber Balkin, she finished in sixth place in her number 15 Toyota. Jesse Love in the 20 Toyota finished in seventh. Then it was Jack Wood in the number six Chevrolet and Jason White in the number nine Chevrolet uh, coming in ninth. The rounding out the top ten was Dale Quarterly, the number four in his uh, racing machine. So uh, a nice uh, group there in the top ten. But there's some other ones that uh, we might want to mention here, Jay. Well, you dropped just below that. You had Christian Rose there uh, in the number 12 spot, or finishing in the number 12 spot in the number 32. I think we're going to see him make a solid run for the championship. I know it doesn't start out great there with that 12th place finish, um, at Daytona, but I think we're going to see him uh, there towards the top all throughout the year. Now, there were a couple yeah. of teams, um, unfortunate, uh, I mentioned it earlier, you get caught up in some of the, somebody else's stuff. One of my favorites, uh, talk about him a little bit, Gus Dean finished uh, 35th, and Scott Mellon, yet again involved in a wreck, had a strong car, uh, finished in the 30A spot. Those are two that I wanted to highlight that I felt really had a race competing car to compete for the win. We didn't get to see it, um, but they got taken out way too early. I also thought Frankie Mundes had a pretty great start uh, for his first race back into 
uh, a full-time season uh, in the Arkham Menard Series this year. He finished in the 11th place. Uh, that was not bad for him. No, you're right. It was a, another one that had just in the way things mix up at the end of these races. Um, and it's tough when we read just straight down the finishing order um, for you to understand. That's why if you go over to uh, Slow Racing and watch that race, of how everybody ran throughout the race, not ended up finishing, but how they ran throughout the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one surprise to me, um, I know he was up there in contention, but Jesse Love ended up in the seventh spot. Uh, fully expect that to be one of the championship contending teams. Uh, yes. Would have thought maybe there too. He would have been a little bit stronger there at Daytona. Yes. Uh, we've got a lot of drivers uh, that are rookies this senior this year, including Connor Mosack, LeVar Scott, Mandy Chick, uh, Jesse Love, Frankie Munoz, Christian Rose, Steve Lewis Jr., Tony Cosentino. I don't know why he's a – well, maybe it's just this series that he's a uh, rookie. But there were quite a few. Logan Miseraca, uh Gage Rogers, Brayton Laster, A.J. Moyer, Miguel Gomes, Andy Jakowiak, Zach Heron, uh, and Hunter Deschantel uh, are all rookies in this race. So there were a large number of rookies uh, that were contending for the first time in the Daytona 500 uh, So and in the Arca Menard Series. Some of these names we've heard before in the Arca East or the Arca West, but this was on the bigger stage with the Arca Menard Series. Well, and that's what we'll see, uh, no different than than in the Cup Series. Daytona is its own beast. It is a points race, it counts. However, it's kind of one of those of a separate race that they really prepare for that race. So throughout the season, some of these teams, um, you know, strictly just try to make the race at Daytona. It's a well-paying race. Can set them up later on in the year for more races. As mentioned, Van Alstub, I'm sure that money helps going towards uh, sponsorships for more races. So... Um, we'll see as the season plays out. And then later on in the year, once we get the Sioux Chief Showdown races mixed in, we'll see some different names, and some of them might return for those races as well, um, trying to win that Sioux Chief Showdown. Yes, indeed. Okay, now I do have the um, media interview with Greg Van Alst after his victory, and uh, it's actually 15 minutes in length. So I think I'm going to go ahead and start with that. Uh, Jay, and then you and I can talk about the interview uh, on the other side. But this way we'll be able to play the entire interview uh, so everybody can hear it uh, because this was an upset. <laughs> this was a big deal for Greg Van Alst, uh winning this race. So let's go ahead and listen to the interview now. By the winner of the Brandt 200 supporting Florida FFA, Greg Van Alst. And Greg, a lot of people might not know your story. You you won the CRA Late Model Championship up in the Midwest, which earned you the right to come to participate in the ARCA Road to Daytona. And it was that test here at Daytona that kind of motivated you to buy your ARCA car because you wanted to come and race here, and now three years later you're sitting in victory lane. How, how are you feeling? What are your emotions right now? Is, is this real? I mean, it's, I, uh, yeah, I mean, 100%, we won the late model championship and 
came to the test, and and the place just has a magical feel, as you all know. And and uh, I, I just I needed to do anything and everything I could to get back here and race. And and, and when we started to to do that, it was more of just a come race. Um, of course, you always dream of being here and winning, but oh man, it feels good. What were your emotions coming off of turn four when you cleared the 44 car and you started thinking it might happen? I had to watch the replay because I didn't know what happened. Like I was so focused that it just it just happened. And and um, I mean I, I I knew if I pushed the 44 and just locked with him, um, I was either gonna wreck him or just keep the train going. And and I got locked onto him good. And and um, I knew if I could get the two clear down the back stretch and we could get separated. Um, the 18 uh, kind of told us early in the race that we were best friends, and and um, I knew if I if I sucked back and got the run uh, going down the back stretch that I, I kind of hoped he would go with me because it was going to be his best option, and um, it just played out perfect. I got right to the right rear quarter panel, and and uh, Connor gave me a shot coming off a of four, and that was it. I know we'll have some questions. We'll open it up. We'll start here with uh, Jacob Seelman. And we'll go to Matt. You're up front. Jacob Seelman, 77 Sports Media, kicking the tires.net. Greg, first, congratulations. Uh, you started this ARCA thing, as Charlie kind of alluded to, right after the turn of the millennium. I think 2001 it was. Uh, as a kid, you know, the first time you broke into this series, what this was the dream then i mean did that ever fade at any point even even when you had to step away from the series to work on the business because you didn't have the funds did this dream this moment ever fade at all for you no absolutely not man i i know everybody says they dream of racing but i mean that's it's what i live for and and uh yeah we was back uh, we was here in 2001 and and uh, I just knew that I wanted to be on, on the big tracks. I love short track racing, but, man, the big tracks just feel like the big leagues. And, um, uh, you know, everything – sorry, my crew and stuff's walking in. It's getting me emotional. Um, but uh, uh, it just, everything I've done is to race. I mean, I love my wife. I love my family. And, and they have supported me. My wife and I have been together since high school. She's been to I don't know how many races. This is the first time she's been in the garage in 17 years or the pits. Since we've been married, she has not been able to come to the garage and the pits with us because of our kids. And I told her back in December she had to come because I was winning Daytona. And um, here we are. You were that confident even then? Just had a feeling? I had a feeling. I, I I was I I don't get nervous, um, and you can ask her. I was I was so nervous I didn't hardly eat this morning, and y'all can look at me and tell I don't eat I don't miss meals. <laughs> <laughs> last one for me. Um, this this race in particular, the last seven eight years seems to have become either about the kids or about the super teams. Charlie will correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but I think this is the first time since Bobby won here in 2012 that a driver owner has not just come into this race but won this race. Is it that much more special that it's a bunch of volunteer guys, that it's your team, that you guys just went out and 
kind of showed everybody else up a little bit? Man, I hadn't even had time to think about that, but holy cow, yeah. I mean, I tried to get manufacturer support this winter, and, and um, you know, I thought I was going to get it, and then I seen it go to another team, and it's, it's, man, it's just so disheartening because, you know, guys – Guys like me, I mean, you're just told just just work hard, put your head down, just keep digging, and and things will happen. And you know, we we uh, we talked to multiple sponsors over the winter that that you know we thought were going to come on board full time, and and um, it, it's just this the whole the whole winter was just uh, I don't want to say one disappointment after another, but I knew my speedway car was good, and I, I I've spent countless hours in the shop. Um, I've got a couple buddies that come over every every time that they can, and and we've got countless countless hours on this. Like my Phoenix car is not even close to ready, and um, that's what, <laughs> we got a lot of work to do to get there. <laughs> we'll send it up here to Matt Weaver up, up front. She's coming. Matt Weaver, uh, Motorsports Tribune. Um, you've been pretty adamant throughout the years that when you wouldn't build Top Choice, that it was always with the mindset that I still want to race. Like, I, I got to make a living, and I've got to, you know, build a profession. But I want to have a, a good race car because of it too. Um, can you kind of give me an idea into the insight of like, how do I build this business and also be able to race too? Honestly, I don't know how I'm able to pull it off. It, I. I I have things that happen, and I don't know why. I'll have I'll have weeks where I don't know where the next job's coming from, and then something happens, and we get a big job. And it's like, you know, I mean, I I don't even know. I, I mean, I mean, I know, but I'm not I'm not I'm not going into detail. But I know there's some people watching over us right now, and. Pretty sure they were riding with us on that last lap. And uh, I believe you guys were fastest at the test. Was that, was that right? Or Okay, okay. You guys have always been fast here, though. So I'm curious, what have you guys been able to do um, to bridge that gap to, to not just show up at Daytona and be competitive, but to be a top contender? Because I feel like going into this year, in your gut feeling, you, you guys knew that you would be a top team here now. Yeah, I, I, I owe a lot to Jim Long. And I owe a lot to Chad Bryant. I bought this car off Chad Bryant, and um, you know neither one of those guys had to help a guy like me. But you know both of them told me that they believed in my story, they believed in me, and and you know, like I've said, guys like me aren't supposed to do this. You know, it's it's the, the unfortunate side is racing's getting to be where it's it's all about the young guys, and and racing's losing guys like me because. It's just so hard to do this, and you know, Chad and Jim, and I mean, they just they kept telling me little things like you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Sometimes it's almost overwhelming, um, but I I just you know went out in the shop, kept my head down, and kept doing the little things to this car, and I mean, you know, we got we got done with the test, and there was a few things that I guess as an owner driver and a fabricator. Drivers don't notice certain things because they don't have to. And when I'm in the test, I'm I'm watching the cars and I'm watching the way the air moves on the cars, and and 
I mean, I, I went back to the shop and made our car better because I could see what the air was doing to the other cars. And it's like, well, mine has to be doing that because I know what I don't have there. So, you know, I, I went back and, and methodically put racing in certain spots and did certain things to, to make the car better. And then one more for me. You said your Phoenix car is not even close to anywhere in these uh, you leave here not only the winner but also the points leader. Uh, do you think that having this moment could help you go back to those you know, the manufacturers or potential partners and say, hey, we got a chance to do something really special this year. Get on board now while the train is just leaving, right? Yeah, I mean that would be that would be awesome. Um, you know, if if we could, we'll send it over to Frontstretch.com. Dale McFadden with FrontStretch.com. Uh, Greg, like, what do you do outside of, of racing? You said you get big, big jobs. What do you do? So I started a fence company 16, 17 years ago, somewhere in there. And um, for those that don't know, basically the story is I was I was trying to make my way through the ranks. I've had sponsors that came through that, that you know, jumped ship off of us because I was the one that introduced them to motorsports marketing, and they, they moved over to, you know, the big leagues. The, I mean, I've had, I could probably name a half a dozen sponsors that are in the big garage right now that probably wouldn't be there had I not introduced them. And, and, and on a very small level, like I'm not sitting here saying that I'm, I'm the guy, but um, I kept plugging and kept plugging and kept plugging. A deal would fall through. So um, my wife and I, we moved to Florida. I took a job in racing. And it, it just didn't work out. We, we moved back to Indiana. Met a guy and was running a dirt sprint car. And it was a terrible car, but it was just something to get in and drive. And um, we had we had $1,250 in our checking account. And I got paid every two weeks. And I just got paid. And I'm sitting on the back of the trailer, and I'm sitting there watching all these trucks come in. And every one of them has got a construction company on it. And... I'm like, man, I need to do something to, to make more money so I can do this. Well, I flipped seven times that night, and, I mean, it, it messed my head up. I had a concussion, I'm sure. I had two black eyes. And Saturday morning, I bought another chassis, and I gave $1,200 for it. I had $50 in our checking account that I had to make the next two weeks on, and we had a brand-new baby girl. Like, that's stupid. But that's what guys like me do. And um, so anyway, I'm out in the garage, and I'm struggling because I've got what I would say probably was a concussion. And I'm trying to put it together, and I, I get mad, and I do a tantrum, kicked it off the stands, and said, I'm, I'm done. Wife asked me, she says, what are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. I'll start a fence company or something, but I'm not doing this anymore until I can do it right. And I sold almost all of my racing stuff and didn't know if I would ever, ever race again. And, I mean, I literally started my fence company with a pair of post hole diggers and a hammer. And I am, I mean, that is 100% how it started. I got my first job, made decent money. I just kept reinvesting. And, and now, I mean, it's, it's, the fence company is 75% of our budget. So, wow. uh, second question. Um, 
when your car was pushed out of victory lane, like there was a large group of fans, and I think crew members who started cheering and whistling for for, for the car. Um, like, so what does it mean for you? Like, just in the short period of time since the race was over, it's, that it's kind of resonating with with people. I mean, it's it's crazy. I I kind of want to get to the garage because I I mean, <laughs> those are my people. You know what I mean? Like, I I'm I'm so looking forward to getting in there and and the other teams and I mean. I love ARCA because they, I mean, everybody in there understands our story, and, and I try to drive with a lot of respect and, um, you know, try to try to get other drivers to understand that, you know, if, 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 if I drive them clean, maybe they'll drive me clean, you know, like an old-school mentality. And, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the drivers do, and, and I think that resonates with the with the team owners and the crew chiefs and the other crew guys. I mean, I drive the hauler most of the time. I mean, I'm I'm in here in the garage with the other hauler drivers when I when I get to the track. And you know, I I uh, I, I just I think that goes a long way with the the peers in the garage. We'll send it over to Dino Oberto over here. Here's an interesting nugget. He mentioned his crew chief, Jim Long. Jim was a former crew chief at Hendrick Motorsports and has won races such as the Brickyard 400. Jim actually grew up two miles from the ARCA office in the motorsports metropolis of Lambertville, Michigan. So nice way to tie it all back. Dino, go ahead. Uh, Dino Oberto, Area Auto Racing News. Um, first of all, congratulations. Great uh, uh, race today. Um, you stepped away from it. You did back uh, when you said uh, in '01 or so, and you got back into it. Uh, to, you got back into it this year. Um, the ARCA series was that always where you wanted to get back into do it with ARCA, or was there other series that you possibly thought of uh, taking that route? Are you asking if someone's going to give me a cup ride? I mean, I'll race tomorrow. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm a realist, so like. I, I understand what it takes to make it in racing now. And ARCA is a perfect fit for guys like me. And, um, you know, if if there's another opportunity, whether it's truck, Xfinity, whatever, I mean, would I take it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the ultimate dream. But, you know, I, I feel like ARCA is home for guys like me and my crew. Thank you. By the winner of the Brant 200, supporting Florida all right, uh, that was a very compelling uh, story that he told us, Jay. Yeah, there is so much more there just in those, what, 15 minutes. Uh, as I mentioned, he's been on the show multiple times to take it to another level. And when I think about it, just as a human being, you appreciate the story of having a dream and, and succeeding. As a race fan, as a true going at the grassroots race and growing up with it, as a race fan, I mean, it's just that to that next level. Um, you know, and I take nothing away from the top names with the top sponsors and the driving they do, but to hear somebody like that, and I know he kind of mentioned it of when he said, he, you know, uh, he doesn't miss many meals. That is not your stereotypical-looking uh, top driver. But to, to have that dream, not give up on it. You know, he said he had to step away because yes. he wanted to do it right you know, and come back to make it happen. Uh, how can you just not feel filled with emotion from that kind of story? Exactly. What I think the message, too, for anybody who's looking at an opportunity to race in the Arkham Menard Series, uh, don't be afraid of failures. 
because uh, each failure is another step closer to achieving your dream and having success. And uh, he learned from the failures that he had. And those that learning process that he went through is what led to him doing everything he possibly could to put himself in victory lane. And, and to have the kind of confidence that he had after uh, racing in the uh, testing session at Daytona, <laughs> to tell his wife, you've got to be there because I'm going to win, um, I think is, is really um, an amazing confidence. And every time we've talked to Greg Van Alt, he has told us that he is confident that that win was coming at Daytona. Uh, and so it was really good to see him finally achieve that. It really was. And the other thing I think about it, um, it started at the top level. As you mentioned, the, the, the setbacks, if you will, um, take this this year's Daytona 500 winner, uh, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. He had been yeah. pulled out of a car uh, due to needing some time to, to watch and learn from the outside. Mark Martin you know, went from the cup level back to the Xfinity, came back and established himself as a top guy at the top level. In the Arkham Menard series, and Greg talked about that, of that being home for a certain, when uh, we went, I believe, uh, several of the races, Chicagoland, Iowa, to see a guy there, and I believe it was Wayne Peterson's team, I mean, you saw it, three guys, a pickup truck, and an open hauler carrying a Arca level <laughs> car. You know, and those yeah. three guys, they don't have a big hauler. They don't have thousands of dollars of equipment surrounding them. You know, they got a, a jack and a hammer. And, you know, I mean, to see that um, in that series uh, is just amazing. And then to see one achieve that victory, especially at Daytona, as he said, I mean, that's every – being realistic, you know, you understand it, but to win at Daytona just is the pinnacle. This is the roots of racing, and what a lot of fans have said that they want. They want to see people bring their own car and and be able to race it. Well, he's put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that car, It is, and it is his car. Uh, with the help of and support of uh, uh, the people he mentioned, Chad Bryant and Jim Long and his buddy that comes over and helps him with the car, I, I just think it's a fantastic story and very inspirational uh, for anybody who's considering uh, starting a career in the Arkham Art Series. You can do it. Uh, it's not always going to be a bed of roses, but that success will come if you if you stay to it and learn from the mistakes, learn what you need to do differently, and do it. And that's exactly what Greg Van Oltz has done. So uh, I just love the inspiration of his story. And, and you mentioned that with that determination. Uh, I know he's going uh, looking to run for the championship this year off to a very good start, obviously, by winning. Um, but mentioning his Phoenix car, he's like, it's a long ways from being done. You know, that's not one of these teams that has five, six cars that are ready to just spin out the next one or already be at the next track. You know, uh, I know the Arkham and Ard series has a little bit bigger time gap between races, not week to week, but, um, and you know, that didn't even phase him. You know, he said, we'll get it done. <laughs> yep. Yep. He said it's going to happen and, uh, he did get it done. So, uh, just really, really, uh, happy for him and uh, happy that uh, he was able to finally make that happen. And it, it has been an effort on his part, and he's done just a fantastic job with it. Um, 
Okay, let's go ahead and move over to our next era energy 250 in the NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. Uh, Zane Smith made it two in a row. He is the reigning uh, Truck Series champion, and he came back and made uh, made two Daytona wins in a row for the season opening race. At the age of 23, he drives the number 38 Love Speedco Ford for Front Row Motorsports, and uh, his crew chief is Chris Lawson. He won uh, his eighth victory in 70 Craftsman Truck Series races. It was his first victory and first top ten finish this year, but his second victory and second top ten finish in four races at Daytona. Finishing second was Tanner Gray. He posted his second top ten finish in four races at Daytona. It's his first top ten finish this year. Christian Eckes finished third, posting his second top ten finish in four races at Daytona. And Nick Sanchez, who finished 26th, was the highest finishing rookie of the race. Uh, another tidbit here, Zane Smith becomes the third reigning NASCAR Truck Series champion to win the following season's opener Excuse me, at Daytona International Speedway. He joins 2004 champion Bobby Hamilton and 2009 champion Todd Bodine as only one of three people who have accomplished that feat. So that's pretty cool, too. Well, as you mentioned, uh, no matter who the driver is, what the race, there, there's a story there. And there are so many with Zane Smith. Yeah. And you mentioned that. I watched Race Hub. Todd said, you know, when they brought that up, uh, he said actually he was kind of pulling against uh, Zane Smith for that reason of, of being one of only two drivers at that time to have the back-to-back. But um, right. Zane, Zane joined that club. The, the story I take from here is, it was it two years ago, he had finished runner-up in the Truck Series Championship for the second year in a row, didn't even know if he had a ride or where he was going to go. Yeah. Wins the championship. Wins the second uh, season opener at Daytona. Had a cup start. Was in the Daytona 500. Uh, so there again, that story of, you don't quit. You know, he knew he had the talent. It was shown that things just weren't falling into place for him. And two years later, look at where he's at. Here he is. Yep. Yep. Okay. The race itself was actually plagued by rain, but despite a red flag period that lasted for over an hour for track drying, the race was called on lap 79 of the scheduled 79 of, of the scheduled 100. Uh, Tanner Gray, as we mentioned earlier, uh, he scored his career best finish of second. Christian Eckes was third, followed by Colby Howard, Grant Infinger, Ty Majeski, Tyler Ingram, Corey Heim, Matt Crafton, Chase Elliott rubbed out the top ten. Rookie pole sitter, as we mentioned, Nick Sanchez, finished in 26th place. Eckes won stage one, Ankrum won stage two. There were a total of 20 lead changes among just nine drivers, seven cautions for 41 yellow flag lap, three red flag periods for rain. So that's a lot. The average speed of the race was 115.935 miles per hour. Um, Your thoughts about those uh, top ten finishers, Jay? Again, the story behind each one of them, um, you mentioned Tyler Ankrum. He's another one this year in a, uh, I believe it's a one-off or a limited number of races. The showing, again, hopefully he gets uh, some more sponsors and, and opportunities. 
because um, he showed that he's he's willing to race. You know. Um, yeah. Tanner Gray, you mentioned best finish there, starting out this season here in the number 15 uh, Toyota. You got some of your what we expect to be regular championship contenders. Obviously, Zane Smith, Christian Eckes in a new ride. Uh, Grant Enfinger leading that team now as a very solid veteran. Uh, we saw Ty Majeski uh, basically just changed uh, numbers. He was a championship contender last year. And then you got the newcomers, uh, Tanner Gray, Corey Heim finished in the eighth spot. Um, again, the change over there from Kyle Busch Motorsports, it is still a Toyota, um, but it's now Tricon Garage uh, in there as well. And then, as Daytona does, uh, some of the stories or some of the drivers kind of get shuffled down because of a not-so-good finish, but we'll see how they go throughout the year. Um, I know one highlight for throughout the race this weekend, Travis Pastrana, come home with a 13th-place finish in the truck, um, was a good story. Yes, indeed. Uh, It was fun to see Travis Pastrana behind the wheel. I saw him talking with several drivers uh, throughout the weekend, and uh, uh, it's great to see that kind of crossover. Uh, We've talked about that before, how much we enjoy uh, the crossover between drivers from different uh, series coming over into NASCAR. And the Daytona 500 seems to be one of those races that we get a lot of that. Uh, So that was great to see Travis Pastrana in the truck race, but he also raced the cup race as well. He did a a great job, and and there's a reason that he has the followers he does. You saw the excitement level in him. You talk about Mm -hmm. kind of touring through. He does that a lot on social media. And there's a reason with that. And, and they said of anything motorsports, he has done it or is willing to attempt it, you know, and was successful at it, not just a, a show up, um, you know, for the celebrity spotlight. I mean, he was successful right. at it. Again, the finish may not be the best, but here a, a 12th place or 13th place finish uh, was competitive, uh, most certainly. And, again, when we get to the Daytona 500 itself, one of those storylines could have played out really well. And, and that's what I love. And we, and we saw it in the truck series towards the end of this race as it changed up back and forth. I kept thinking in my head, oh, look at the story that could happen here. And then they'd, they'd shuffle up and it's like, okay, that one's gone, but look at this one here, you know. I mean, there's just that great <laughs> yep. story with any possible finish. Yeah, because as you mentioned, sometimes you get caught up in an accident. Uh, it doesn't, you end up with a finish that doesn't necessarily represent how you drove throughout the race. Uh, but we did have uh, quite a few people that that ran into that type of situation. Dean Thompson was out. Uh, let's see, there were actually three drivers out on lap 28 due to an accident, including Clay Greenfield, Haley Deegan, and Dean Thompson. So it was an early day uh, for those three drivers. Cody Rohrbaugh had an accident on lap 39. It took him out of the race. Parker Kligerman was out on lap 45. Uh, because of the damaged vehicle policy, so he was not able to get back out on track. Brett Holmes out on lap 49 because of a brake issue. And then two other drivers, uh, Roger Carruth and Daniel Dye, both rookies in this uh, series this year, uh, out on lap 57 due to accidents. So if you're wondering what happened with those folks, uh, they ran into some trouble at Daytona, which is not unusual, and uh, their finish does not necessarily represent how well they ran. So uh, 
uh, as Jay said, you almost have to watch the race to see uh, exactly how these guys ran uh, throughout the entire race or what part of the race they did run. And we're we're back in sync on that on that psychic page there. You set me up real well, Sharon. Of talk about it. It is Daytona. Things happen. You you said. I mean, there's always going to be that big one, if you will. Things happen outside of your control. Amplified there at Daytona, but uh, was not easy on the rookies. You mentioned Nick Sanchez was the pole sitter. Uh, looks like he led what five laps, uh, five times for four laps. Oh no, those are his finishes. Finished fifth and fourth in the uh, in the stages, and we'll talk about that when we get to points. But again, running well, uh, learned some things. I'll tell you that he learned some things yeah. when it comes to drafting and bumping. Okay, uh, Rajah Karuth, Daniel Dye, twenty ninth. Yeah, twenty ninth and thirtieth. Uh, again, they were running solid, um, learning, and unfortunately, some lessons you have to learn the hard way. <laughs> Uh, and that happened this weekend, as it always tends to at Daytona. Yes. Now, there were some drivers who failed to qualify uh, for Daytona in the truck series, including Lawless Allen, Brian Duzat, uh, Todd Peck, Spencer Boyd, Caden Honeycutt, and Norm Benning are the uh, drivers that didn't make it into the race. Uh, so... Uh, it's unfortunate because I know the effort that goes into trying to get into this race uh, to get to the track and not be able to qualify to get in is disappointing. But unfortunately, only 36 cars were eligible to race. And so that, that uh, what is it, six drivers had to go home. So we always hate to see that, but it does happen. You're right, and, and unfortunately, we have to report on that. Um, you know, talk about the story. There's the good story, and there are the bad ones uh, when we talk about somebody wrecking out, or in this case, not even qualifying. And, and I know I saw an interview with Norm Benning. Uh, you know, his positivity and excitement level as they got ready for qualifying um, yeah. just through the roof. And, and for him to be on that list, I know when we get to the Xfinity, uh, Ryan Vargas was another one, didn't even have the opportunity yeah. Uh, they had a mechanical issue, couldn't get out in their time slot, and NASCAR had tightened that up a little bit this year, so unfortunately wasn't able to. So, But that's where we talk about with Greg Van Alst, of take that, learn from it, come back stronger next week or next race, um, and be that much better prepared. You know, the success story will come down the road. Absolutely, and and we will see, you know, some of these people that maybe didn't make it into the race, uh, their success stories are coming. So uh, it's a matter of staying tuned in, and you will see uh, some of these drivers uh, find their success somewhere down the road. So uh, definitely a lot to look forward to here. Uh, the next race for the truck series, let me uh, go over that, is actually the Victoria's Voice Foundation 200 out at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. That won't be until Friday, March the 3rd, and it will be televised on Fox Sports 1. So you'll want to stay tuned for that race, uh, the next race for the truck series here in uh, NASCAR. So uh, they'll take a little bit of a break. I know uh, this week at uh, uh, Auto Club Speedway, it's just the Cup Series and the Xfinity Series that we'll see out there on track uh, at Sonoma, so at Auto Club Speedway. <clears throat> it will. And, again, you mentioned the draw of Daytona itself. Uh, what did you say here, 40 
some six 42 car trucks for the 36 truck field. And as a fan, I am thrilled with that. We're, yes. We see more than what's available, and people have to race their way to get in. But with that, you mentioned it, it does come that heartbreaking story. We'll see how that plays out throughout the rest of the races in the season. But that tells me that the sport is thriving, um, you know, that you have that many trying to get in. And, and that's a good thing for the fans. Like I said, that's from the fans' perspective. You know, from that, that yes. team perspective and a business side, it stings, it hurts, uh, no doubt. Um, but like I said, they'll the recover and come back stronger. Absolutely. So uh, we've got a lot to look forward to. I always feel like the truck racing is very aggressive racing and, and fun to watch. So if you haven't watched a truck race, I really encourage everybody uh, to tune in for those this season. Uh, they are a lot of fun to watch and some of the best racing. Uh, but we've seen some great racing in the Xfinity Series as well. And Austin Hill, another driver that made it two in a row, uh, wins at Daytona at the age of 28 in the number 21 Bennett Transportation Chevrolet for Richard Childress Racing, and his crew chief is Andy Street. He won his third victory in 49 Xfinity Series races. Two of those are back-to-back Daytona wins. His first victory and first top ten finish this season, and his second victory and second top ten finish in four races at Daytona. Uh, it was a photo finish, so John Hunter Nemechek had to wait a little bit to find out if he won or not. He ended up in second place, posting his second top ten finish in four races at Daytona and his first top ten finish this year. Justin Allgaier finished third, his 11th top ten finish in 25 races at Daytona International Speedway. And what a race for Parker Rutzlaff. He finished fourth and he was the highest-finishing rookie of the race. Any thoughts uh, there, Jay, before we move on? Well, this one, uh, I know there was some question when uh, Austin Hill went to RCR in the Xfinity Series. Uh, I think those are being answered uh, without a doubt. Yeah. And as far as it came to Daytona, Austin Hill left no doubt. He was the pole sitter. He led four times for a total of 39 laps. Uh, not sure if that was, I think it was the highest, as Justin Algar was next with 36 laps. Uh, I don't recall other than maybe through pit cycles that he was outside the top 10, maybe even outside, not outside the top five. I mean, he was the top guy all day long. Yes, it was fun to watch. Uh, now, after Sam Mayer spun on, the roof of his Chevrolet on the front stretch at Daytona, uh, trailing a shower of sparks. Austin Hill, Justin Alcauer, and John Hunter Nemechek actually sat in their cars and waited. And after what must have seemed like an eternity to the drivers, NASCAR reviewed video on that final lap of overtime and declared Austin Hill the winner of his second straight season opener at the World Center of Racing in front of the largest crowd to witness an Xfinity Series race at Daytona since the $400 million renovation of the facility in 2016. It took a few minutes to review, but Austin Hill picked up that second win at Daytona, uh, edging out John Hunter Nemechek, Justin Algauer, Sam Mayer, who spun on that backstretch eventually and eventually flipped. Uh, Nemechek was awarded second with Algauer and third. Parker Retzlaff uh, gave a really nice push in there. He placed in fourth. 
the 19 of Myatt Snyder rounded out the top five. Then it was Riley Herbst in sixth, Joe Graff Jr. finishing in seventh, Ryan C., Cole Custer, and Justin Haley rounding out the top ten. Hill uh, led the most laps at 39 and won the opening stage. Justin Outdoor picked up a playoff point for winning stage two. Uh, they're worth 25 lead changes among 11 drivers, eight cautions for 32 yellow flag laps, and the average speed of the race was 132.524 miles per hour. Your thoughts about those top ten? Well, let's start Let's start with what you called the photo finish, and it wasn't about two cars. It was about three. And and yeah. I know watching it, the intensity that I felt in that and how long it was, I don't know, before NASCAR made that decision. You mentioned all three pulled onto the front stretch feeling like they had an argument. Um, this one extremely because not just, you know, when the caution comes out, they hit the button to turn the lights on, it time stamps it. And that's what they go back and look at. When they hit that button and time stamp it, um, but there was also the question, John Hunter Nemechek was below the double yellow line, which is out of bounds yeah. at Daytona, unless you get pushed down there. So that came into play as to whether or not he was forced down there. And I really did think that maybe John Hunter had gotten it if they allowed him the position. They announced uh, Austin Hill as the winner, and I had to wait because you were still waiting to see John Hunter Nemechek happened to be my race pick, but... Uh, I was waiting to see if, if John Hunter just got beat or if they had disqualified him because it was questionable. I felt like he was forced down there, but, you know, that's, that's a decision NASCAR has to make. And they apparently did feel he was forced down there with that caution and the way everybody was bumping and banging. Um, and he did not I advance think they got his the, position. And that was one of the things. It wasn't advanced. He kind of stayed in his position as they, as they came. Right. And, again, that when they time stamp it, you know, it was an immediate thing on that time stamp. So um, I think they did get to make the right decision. But there were some other great storylines there. You mentioned rookie uh, Parker Retzlaff. Uh, we mentioned in the truck series how rough it was on the rookies. Parker Retzlaff in fourth and Chandler Smith in the 12th position the top two finishing rookies. Sammy Smith, uh, not quite so good uh, down in the what 19th position. But then you got Riley Herbst, got him a top 10. Joe Graff Jr., yeah. moving over to Seag uh, Racing in the top 10. They're in seventh. Uh, team owner uh, Ryan Seag right behind him. Cole Custer returning to the Xfinity Series, top 10. Um, so, again, a lot of great storylines, a lot to look forward to for this season. I, I'm telling you that. <laughs> there there definitely is. Uh, now, uh, just like uh, every race, there were some issues uh, for some of the drivers. And we'll start with Bailey Curry on lap eight had an engine issue uh, that took him out of the race. Blaine Perkins was caught up in an accident on lap 19, as was Daniel Hemrick on lap 20, uh, taking him out of the race. On lap 41, Sheldon Creed and Ryan Ellis were caught up in an accident, taking both of them out. Uh, then engine issues plagued uh, Brendan Poole on lap 81 and uh, C.J. McLaughlin on lap 87. Uh, an electrical issue took out Jesse Awuji on lap 110, and uh, I believe everybody else uh, finished the race running. Uh, an accident. Actually, yeah, C.J. McLaughlin had an accident that took him out of the race. So, uh, again, there were some drivers that 
failed to qualify. You mentioned it earlier. Ryan Vargas was one of those drivers. Alex LeBay, Timmy Hill, Garrett Smithley, Josh Balicki, and Dexter Stacy. Uh, that's another six drivers out of uh, the 38th field uh, that uh, were not able to qualify for the Daytona race. Uh, but it is good to see uh, everybody making that attempt. I think it's great. And hopefully we do see that. Like I said, I know some of the, the, we're moving to the West Coast. That's where some of these teams aren't able to uh, bring together the funds to make that kind of trip out to the West Coast. Um, So I think we'll see that number come down a little bit. Again, Daytona is obviously highly visible in a race you you really try to make um, and feel real bad for those teams that that weren't able to, um, but hope to see them throughout the year. And then you mentioned of, and I, and I was going to say, I th- thought it was real good. We only had eight, considering it was Daytona, eight of the tie, the 38 that didn't finish uh, either on the lead lap or one lap down. I was thinking that was a pretty good high percentage. But you mentioned it, that the accident happened on the last lap. So there were still some more that may have gotten credit for a lead lap finish. Uh, Sam Merrill, yeah. one of them, I think he was actually one lap yeah. down, um, upside down on his roof. Uh, so he finished 27th. So there was more than what I thought. I was thinking it was a pretty clean race, but the more I thought about it, it was like, no, it happened on the last lap, so they still got credit for yep. that uh, lead lap finish, but uh, we're not yeah, in drivable condition. This particular stage is the unofficial results. Uh, so once it becomes official, that will show up. And a couple of those there, uh, that was uh, up front, Possibly a race-winning move had it worked. Uh, it unfortunately did not, so it, w- w- it was a bad finish. But um, there was an interesting dynamic there throughout that race. If you get a chance to go back and watch it, I highly recommend it. Teammates, uh, Justin Algar and I think it was Josh Berry. Algar made a move what, four or five laps uh, prior to the end to put himself in position. Uh, you know, they yeah. say you, know, you want your team, your team to win or your manufacturer to win. Justin Algar made a move pretty early and uh, was there for himself. And I'm not saying that was wrong. Uh, and he ended up one of the ones in the photo finish. Um, but I'm sure his teammate, Josh Berry, was like, oh, that was kind of uncalled for. Uh, you know, again, five laps to go at Daytona. That's a long time to race yet. <laughs> yeah, it's still a long way to go at a track like Daytona. Uh, but I, I can only imagine how hard it is for them. Uh, it's one of the learning curves that a lot of these drivers learn over time is how to pace themselves uh, to be there at the end. And sometimes you get so anxious uh, that you make a move a little bit earlier than maybe you should or you get too excited and you make a move that actually hurts you rather than helps you. And it's just part of what happens as part of a learning curve of racing at tracks like Daytona International Speedway. Uh, it happens at all the tracks, but some tracks take a little more finesse uh, and time. Uh, most certainly. Uh, and, and I say this was with at least five laps to go. And go back to the Arkham and Ard series. I know Scott Melton had his opinion on uh, a move that was made there like six laps into the race. He, he wasn't happy with that. But um, that one, like I said, it just kind of surprised me as a teammate thing. We've seen that. Talk a little bit more about it on the Cup series of, you know, sticking together until you have to go. Justin felt for him to have a shot at winning. He had to make it a little earlier, and he did. And, and like I said, I, I understand that you are there to drive for your team and, yep. and your victory. 
Um, so uh, I know there's probably some people that weren't real happy with it. Josh Berry, like I said, his teammate being one of them, be like, hey, where'd you go? <laughs> right, exactly. He lost a teammate in the process. So, yeah, it's just one of those things that happens. Uh, and you try to make the best decisions you can, but these guys have to make those decisions in a split second. And uh, that's not always easy to do uh, because you, it's situational. You've got to look at what's happening around you, and, uh, you know, you've got to rely on what the spotter is telling you, what your crew chief is telling you. Um, and there's just a lot of information that they're being fed, and uh, they have to go with their gut at a certain point, and, and I guess that's what happened in this particular case. Uh, now, the next race for the Xfinity Series is the Production Alliance Group 300 out at Auto Club Speedway. That's this weekend, Saturday, February the 25th at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. It will be on Fox Sports 1 and MRN, Sirius XM Radio. So uh, uh, definitely looking forward to some racing out at Auto Club Speedway for the Xfinity Series this weekend. Well, and, and a couple of things with that of uh, maybe not as much in the Xfinity and trucks, but again, Daytona is a highlight, but especially with the 500, there are teams that specifically prepare a car for that. Even those within the industry say that the season really starts now with this second race. Yeah, um, yeah Daytona is a points paying race, but it is Daytona. So it's kind of a separate race in and of itself, even though it pays points. The regular season grind really starts now. And some of them are in a good position, some of them kind of in a little bit of a hole. The other thing is, this is the final race on, at Auto Club Speedway on the two-mile configuration. Uh, they're planning on doing it into a short track. Uh, I'm trying to, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember the length of it that they're planning on doing. I think it's going to take two years, they said, so that track will not oh. be on the schedule at all for 2024 and possibly beyond. Um, but when they do come back, it'll be on a completely different configuration, going from a two-mile to yeah. a, uh, I don't remember if it's a half-mile or a three-quarter mile, but uh, a short track. Exactly, and so that makes this a do-not-miss event uh, for NASCAR race fans of the Xfinity and Cup Series uh, because this is the last race for that reconfiguration from a two-mile track, which is huge, uh, down to a short track, which is going to be less than a mile long. So uh, it, it is going to be a big, big change for Auto Club Speedway, and uh, I look forward to it. But at the same time, I don't want to miss that race on that two-mile track that we're familiar with out at Auto Club Speedway uh, that's coming up this weekend. <clears throat> well, and, we will... and one of the things – I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and we will preview this Thursday uh, the two races at Auto Club Speedway in the Xfinity and the Cup Series. And one of, one of the things there before we move to the Cup Series, but the story there is the same. This two-mile track, I know when it first started, new asphalt was, uh, I want to say boring, but uh, it's um, follow the leader, high grip, follow the leader, hard to pass. Over these last couple of years, uh, it's been some of the best racing because that grip has gone away. And we talked about it with Chicagoland. Atlanta uh, was another one. So you mentioned these two, two races, not just because it's the last in this configuration. The racing there has been extremely great. Uh, I kind of hate to see that go away, but they were in the yeah. same position. I think really comparing it to Atlanta, 
they were going to have to repave anyway because uh, the surface was just that worn out. They were going to have to repave. And taking that step, though, of, well, if we're going to redo it, let's, let's really redo it. And, uh, you, you don't get bigger than taking a two-mile track down to a half-mile or whatever as far as a redo. Right. But um, it'll be some great racing because that pavement right now is in that sweet spot where it's tough to find grip. So you've got some good side-by-side -side racing action. Exactly right. Now, we talked about uh, two of these races having uh, a two-time winner uh, in Austin Hill and uh, Zane Smith uh, winning back-to-back -back at Daytona International Speedway in the season-opening event. Uh, this race is like the ARCA race. We had a surprise winner uh, in the Cup Series for the Daytona 500 with race winner Ricky Stenhouse, Jr., at age 35, driving the number 47 Crover Cottonelle Chevrolet for JTG Doherty Racing and crew chief Mike Kelly. This is kind of a reuniting of those two, and it worked out pretty darn well. It's his third victory in 365 NASCAR Cup Series races, his first victory in first top ten finish this year, and second victory in fourth top ten finish in 22 races at Daytona. Joey Logano finished second, posting his 10th top 10 finish. He's got 29 races in at Daytona, and it's his first top 10 finish, of course, this year. Christopher Bell posted his first top 10 finish in seven races at Daytona. Noah Gregson, he finished 24th. He was the highest finishing rookie of the race. Uh, today's Daytona 500 uh, well, yesterday's, I should say, produced 21 different leaders in the race. That tied with 2010 for the second most all-time in the Daytona 500, behind only the 2011 race that had 22. Uh, the Daytona 500 also produced 52 lead changes. That's the fourth most in the history of the Great American Race, uh, again, behind the 2011 a uh, race that had 74 lead changes, and in 1974 they had 60 lead changes, and in 83 they had 58. The Daytona 500 also produced 204 green flag passes for the lead, which is the most all-time at Daytona, surpassing the previous record of 177 green flag passes for the lead, and that was set in 2014. Uh, at the Daytona 500, so some. I, I also heard it was the longest race in history, uh, and uh, everything, and I mean everything, was sold out at Daytona. It was, and you know, again, I am a very what called dedicated race fan uh, of. I don't know if it's the love of Greg Van Alster. He said, you know, it's his life, but. I'm very invested in racing, so I like racing no matter what. I understand some races aren't as exciting as others. Those stats you just went through, Sharon, tells you that this was a very exciting race. I know there's some that are very critical of super speedway racing and everything. They were impressed. Uh, we saw a lot of racing action all the way up until the end. Again, a last lap uh, caution brought out the overtime, uh, two overtimes and a, another photo finish, uh, if you will, of going to that time stamp of when the caution came out to determine the winner. This one a little bit quicker. Uh, I know Joey Logano said he, he'd have given the entire purse if NASCAR had to hit that button a little bit quicker. I think if he looked at the replay, he needed to go a little longer because Stenhouse was in front of him that entire stretch of 
when we knew there was going to be a caution to when it came out, yep. uh, Stenhouse yep. was in front of him. Um, so I, th- I think he's got that backwards. After he looks at it, he's going to say, okay, I wish they'd have waited a little longer and let me catch up. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Two overtimes, the longest Daytona 500 in NASCAR history. Uh, Stenhouse got help from an unexpected sor- source. He won the sport's most prestigious race when a wild wreck froze the field for in the second overtime. Stenhouse and reigning NASCAR Cup Series champion Joy Logano were battling for the lead on lap 212 when contact from Eric Almirola's forward uh, started, Travis, uh, started Travis Pastrana's Toyota spinning in turn two. Pastrana's Camry clipped the Chevrolet of Kyle Larson and set it rocketing uh, into the outside wall. Uh, but in the end, it was Ricky Stenhouse Jr. who won the Daytona 500 race at Daytona uh, for his third win. Uh, the second win at Daytona, Logano finished second, followed by Christopher Bell, Chris Buescher, the pole winner, Alex Bowman, A.J. Allmendinger, Daniel Suarez, Ryan Blaney, Ross Chastain, and Riley Earps with a top-ten finish. The race ended under caution during the second overtime attempt. Stenhouse took the lead just before the caution during the first overtime attempt and was out front at the time of the final caution. Most of the race was calm with only one natural caution prior to the end of stage two. The race ran 212 laps for 530 miles, uh, making it the longest Daytona 500 by distance in history. Keselowski won stage one, Chastain won stage two. There were 53 lead changes among 21 drivers, eight cautions for 38 yellow flag laps, and the average speed of the race was a whopping 145.283 miles per hour. Your thoughts about the the, the top ten? Well, let's start at the top, and the story is the same but a little bit different when you talk about NASCAR's top level. JTG Daughtery is a single car team. They have an alliance, and off the top of my head, I'm trying to think which team uh, they have the alliance with. But they are a – which one is it? Well, it's either uh, Hendrick or uh, – RCR because there's there, several ways. There you go. Yep, you, you hit it. It's Hendrick because uh, a few years ago when Stenhouse had the pole, it counted under Hendrick's streak of Hendrick engine uh, being on the pole. So uh, there it you is go. Hendrick Motorsports. I couldn't remember which one of the two, but um, but they are still a single car team, and they do work very hard as far as sponsorship. Uh, they are one that, I uh, say, struggles, but has to work really hard um, when it comes to sponsorship. And consider them, I'd say, a mid-tier team, uh, not one of the top few when you talk about powerhouse teams. So for them to get this victory, and then I mentioned it already, Ricky Stenhouse, one of those driving for Roush Fenway Racing back in the Xfinity Series days, even having won two championships, he was taken out of that car. Um, Did move up to the Cup Series with RFK, uh, Roush uh, Racing at that time. Had to make that transition, ended up swapping over with uh, Chris Busher, who we'll get to in a little bit. But kind of that redemption story for him of, you know, proving he deserves to be there. He had to go through his rough times. And no, when it comes to super speedway, he gets listed as an aggressive driver. But that is what it takes when you talk about Daytona, um, you know, for that. And so great story to start this season here for Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Coming out of just up the road, Olive Branch, Mississippi. 
Yes, that's uh, pretty exciting uh, when uh, uh, kind of a hometown guy uh, is able to win the biggest race of the year. Uh, now, in this race, there were, as the other races, several people who were out due to accidents or engine issues. Ty Dillon was out early, lap 26 for an engine issue. Lap 117 and 118, there were three cars out because of accidents. Eric Jones, Chase Elliott, and Tyler Reddick. Chase Elliott, I know, uh, well, all three of those guys were potential winners of this race. So it was disappointing for them to be out. On lap 181 and then 182, it was Chase Briscoe and Ryan Priest out because of accidents. Uh, another couple of drivers that people thought might win. On lap 202, Austin Dillon and William Byron uh, were out because of accidents. Jimmy Johnson out on lap 203, along with uh, Justin Haley on 204. uh, Let's see, 208. Uh, Todd Gilliland was out due to an accident. Uh, Harrison Burton and uh, Ty Gibbs. Oh, they're all running. Okay, hold on. Then we go up here for more accidents. Austin Sindrick had an accident on 210. On 2.11, there were several drivers, Kyle Larson, Kyle Busch, Bubba Wallace, Eric Almirola, Brad Keselowski, Austin Sindrick, and Noah Gregson. Uh, Not Noah Gregson. Uh, Take that back. Uh, But Brad Keselowski and Austin Sindrick all out on lap 111. Uh, That was the next to the last lap of the race. Uh, Only 17 cars on the lead lap in this event. So that's how exciting this race was. Well, you talk about it there from 16th place, or 18th, sorry, 18th place, Kyle Larson, Kyle Busch, Bubba Wallace, Eric Almirola, Brad Keselowski. They were listed out on lap 211 of a 200-lap race. Uh, Do the math there. I mean, (laughs) that tells you. And the lap before, 210 and 208, 206, 204. This is all in that overtime. There were 34 cars that finished 202 laps, which is more than the advertised amount. 34 cars that really had a shot at it going into the final lap because that was overtime. So that's where you got to go deeper than just the finishing order. Um, Yes. I hadn't hadn't thought that fully about it. I didn't realize it was that far down, but we're talking about 34 cars that had a shot going into what would have been the the advertised length um, to come out with that. Um, But then we did have a couple of big ones, and I think some powerhouse ones that showed strength throughout the day. And I go back to already back lap 181. You mentioned Ryan Freese. He was up front. Uh, really had to be considered one of the ones to, to have a shot at it at the end. Harrison Burton uh, didn't yeah. finish again for the second year in a row. He was up front leading uh, there in those closing laps. So uh, Kyle Bush, Kyle Larson, Jimmy Johnson, I know, was in the top ten. Eric Almirola won his duel. I mean, these were all guys that were running up front, and you really had to be considered. And every lap, it changed. You're like, oh, here's a good story. Oh, here's a good story. Exactly. Uh, that one was <laughs> thrilling all the way to the end. It was indeed. Only two drivers didn't make the race in the Cup Series. Uh, It was a 40-car field, but there were 42 drivers uh, that were hoping to make it. Austin Hill 
and Chandler Smith uh, were not able to qualify for the Daytona 500. Disappointing for them, but I'm sure both of those drivers are going to have many, many more opportunities uh, to make it into this uh, great American race. Uh, th- that's one, if you go back to the to the duels and how they played out, I know Mike and I talked about it, the money team of Connor Daly. Um, and, again, uh, the struggles they have, I'm not making fun of that. Uh, but to see that car, something, whatever was wrong on that car, uh, Sharon, did you see the video yeah. of that car driving out onto the track? Uh, yeah, I said it, it looked like tough. it was from a, a music video, the way it was bouncing and rocking. I've never seen a race car drive like that. Yeah, it was in pretty bad shape. Uh, so he definitely needed a practice uh, to kind of shake out some of those uh, uh, issues there. But uh, And I noticed during the race he was so much slower than the rest of the cars. Uh, but he did a good job of staying out of the way. He did. And I heard an interview, and off the top of my head, I cannot remember the name, his crew chief um, and team leader there for, for the money team was on Sirius XM Radio. And they talked about it of when they put that deal together, just taking that shot, to go down there and take a shot. And, and they knew they were behind the eight ball from the start, um, going to have to qualify. Obviously, the car wasn't uh, where it needed to be. They got it worked on uh, following the duel. They got in because of an accident um, that they were able to maintain. Uh, again, they were not out front leading. They were just maintaining, staying out of trouble, working on the car. When the accident happened, they got by the car they needed to to get in. Through practice, they worked on it, and they got it better. They were still not, as you mentioned, up to speed. However, right. the perseverance of the team, you know, and, and again, it, what it, they ended up uh, 29th uh, in the finishing order, but finished 206 laps. So, again, perseverance, uh, that's what it takes to achieve that next level, and they endured it and, and hung in there through it this weekend, gives them that motivation for the next time. And hopefully they learned a lot from that experience out there in the seat time out there on that track uh, in those 200-plus laps. Uh, that's what that's all about uh, for for some of the newer teams and newer drivers uh, that are racing at Daytona. Now, the next race for the uh, NASCAR Cup Series is the Pala Casino 400 out at Auto Club Speedway on Sunday, February the 26th at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That will be televised on Fox as well as MRN and Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. Um, so, again, two races this coming weekend in the Xfinity Series and the Cup Series. Um, and uh, definitely looking forward to seeing the last races on that two-mile configuration at Auto Club Speedway uh, before it turns into a short track. Well, one thing here, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour, but we talked about it throughout the, uh, throughout the show, uh, I think two of the three series here, the Xfinity Series point standings. Austin Hill was your race winner, is your points leader. But one of the, and I know some fans aren't in favor of it, the stage racing and awarding stage points, I think was huge. Because that way, if you do have that bad finish, not where you ran throughout the, throughout the day or the race, but where... Um, it can help you. Yeah. So in the truck series, Zane Smith was your, was your race winner. He is actually fourth in points. Uh, the Xfinity Series, as I said, Austin Hill was uh, led from the beginning, was up front all day. But on the Cup Series, too, 
uh, Ricky Stenhouse your actual winner. Now, he does have the five playoff points built up, but right now, Joey Logano is actually your points leader based on the stage racing throughout the entire event. So I think that NASCAR did a great job in implementing the stage racing. And I know from the fans' perspective, uh, we saw it. Derek, come into those stage breaks. There's strategy. There is pushing and shoving because those stage points are important. To me, it makes it so much more exciting to watch the entire race versus just the end of the race. And so uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the stage racing, and uh, I think it was a great move by NASCAR to implement that. I know not everybody are, is a fan, but uh, I think it makes the racing so much more exciting. If you think back to the days that we were watching before, uh, we would see back markers just kind of hang out in the back and not race until the end of the race. Well, now there's three opportunities uh, for them to get up there to the front and be in position to race for those points. And uh, we've seen championships uh, be tied, uh, and the difference is how many race wins you have. We've seen uh, one point be the difference between being a champion and not being a champion. Uh, so those stage points are very, very important. It certainly does, and then not just from the fans' perspective. It did change driving styles, like you said, of content to ride mid-pack or at the back um, through that middle section of the race just waiting. Uh, Like I said, we've seen some aggressive battles and moves at that one-third and two-third mark or whenever the stage breaks are. Uh, And that first year, uh, I don't think that the drivers fully understood it, and Martin Truex is the one that capitalized on it to realize how much those stage points throughout the year, those playoff points I just mentioned, uh, you get to start with those. So you have to go into the uh, playoffs. If you're tied, you have playoff points. You're starting 5, 6, 7, 10, 15 points above somebody else. Gives you that little bit of cushion in case you have a bad race, whatever. And you mentioned it. We've seen some ties. We've seen one-point difference. Think about that. One position throughout 26 races throughout the year could make the playoffs or not or moving on yes indeed okay i am still battling my head cold here so for nascar hot topic sound off tonight i think i will facilitate and let you guys do all the talking uh throughout the night but we have joining us uh we have both andy lasky welcome to the show andy hey thanks good to be back first one of the year for me Yes, indeed. We're happy to have you. And returning for the second show of the year is Mike Orzel. Welcome to the show, Mike. hey Good to be back. Sorry to hear you're a little under the weather, Sharon, but uh, knowing me, Jay, and Andy, you should have no shortage of people who like to hear themselves talk. <laughs> yes, indeed. So I'm not going to do too much talking. I'm just going to facilitate the conversation here. Uh, Andy, why don't you kick us off with the first hot topic here tonight? Yeah, this one actually goes back to um, the beginning of Speed Weeks. Um, I don't know if it was covered Thursday or not, um, so correct me if you did cover this, but uh, lack of practice before Daytona 500 qualifying. I thought that was kind of a big deal, so curious what everybody thinks about that. Okay, Mike, your thoughts. I've said this uh, a couple times last season, and I'll, I'll repeat myself again. I think completely eliminating practice was a big mistake on NASCAR's part. Um, yes, they do have practice for certain events, but in terms of on-track availability, 
it's much, much lower than it used to be prior to the pandemic. And it seems like that's just the, the trend that NASCAR wants to maintain is a lot lower practice time availability. I understand the concern about cost and time commitment and things like that. However, you've got problems that have come up during race events that could have easily been identified and mitigated during practice. For example, the steering box issues that we saw at Bristol last year, that would probably have been able to be identified if we had cars on the racetrack prior to competition. And then again this year for the Daytona 500, the first time cars were on track for the entire season, not counting preseason testing, was for qualifying, a live event, a scored event, for the Daytona 500. And the very first car out, which was Chandler Smith, had an electrical issue that most likely would have been identified and corrected during practice. And Bubba Wallace, they interviewed him immediately as Chandler Smith was limping himself around the racetrack. And Bubba Wallace himself said, hey, this is not a good look for our sport. We need to be able to shake some of the cobwebs and some of the weeds out, especially for the first event of the year, and get these cars on the track so we can identify potential issues and correct them before they become an issue that affects competition like they did this week. Okay, Jay. Well, not to leave Andy out there, but you say people that like to talk and I have to have to wait. Uh, That was hard. Um, And with that even even harder, I got to kind of agree with Mike to a certain degree from a race fan fan perspective. Yeah, I want to see practice. I want to see the best cars that are prepared go out and race. So the practice, especially my thought is for a race like Daytona, the Daytona 500, um, to have it. You had drivers, and not that he necessarily needed it, but Jimmy Johnson returning. Drivers like Travis Pastrana. Um, Sharon and I were talking about uh, the, uh, the money team there with uh, Connor Daly. Those are examples of things that could have been worked out. We could have had a better showing from the teams. From the business side, though, Mike mentioned it. I understand the cost of it, um, TV coverage, and the package that gets worked out. But especially for the Daytona 500 that just draws that amount of attention, I certainly think you should have some practice uh, prior to those qualifying in the duels um, in some way, shape, or form. Throughout the year, uh, I understand, like I said, NASCAR is uh, wanting to help the teams and cut down on costs and at-track time. And then you look at from the sponsorship side, if they're not on the track, drivers have more availability to sponsors and fans. So there's a balance, but uh, I, w- I wasn't particularly happy with none going into the Daytona 500, like Mike said. Um, and, and I know he, he referenced back to Bristol last year. That was another one where there were some things that, yeah, probably would have gone better had there been a little bit of practice. So uh, I do think they need to look at this again. I understand during the, the COVID it is what brought it about. Uh, the top teams, I understand, as a whole uh, can be more prepared, and it saves them money. But I think they need to look and maybe move a little bit more back towards having some practice um, throughout the year, especially, like I said, for me specifically, the Daytona 500 is a given. Okay, Andy, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I I would agree with with what's been said by by Mike and Jay, and I think you have to look at it from the standpoint of um, you're going into – qualifying for the biggest race of the year, which does have implications because if you qualify in the front row, you're, you're locked into the front row. And we also have to consider 
that the two fastest qualifiers lock themselves into the field based on speed, which is a huge deal. You know, and in this year's case, it was Travis Pastrana and Jimmy Johnson. Had everybody had the opportunity to practice, <clears throat> excuse me, they may have been able to make their car better and may have had a better shot to try to lock themselves into the field. In fact, some of those teams that failed to qualify may have been able to position themselves to try to lock themselves into the Daytona 500. So if if you look at it, you know, I think it was a a pretty big deal to not have practice, especially when you consider it's for the sport's biggest race. So, you know, when – and then, like what's already been said, Chandler Smith was the first car out, and he had a mechanical problem. That would have clearly been rectified, most likely had there been at least one practice. I'm not saying we need, you know, three or four sessions before qualifying – you know, but maybe a 45-minute or one-hour practice to go out there and allow teams the opportunity to shake the car down, make sure there's no problems, give themselves the best opportunity to put their best effort in qualifying for the sport's biggest race. And, and to me, that's a missed opportunity. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd certainly like to see that return for next year, and I'm sure that's going to get talked about. Um, you know, Bubba obviously had comments about it. I, I think Denny Hamlin had some comments about it, too, um, you know, in you know, in his thought process, basically was how did how did that get missed? How did we not know there wasn't going to be practice before, you know, the biggest race of the year? Now, of course, there was practice leading up to the race itself, but I think when you look at the implications of what qualifying means for the 500, you know, you got to have you know the ability to let teams go out there and at least have you know some on track preparation for that. So. You know, again, not saying we need a ton, but maybe just one session that at least gives everybody an opportunity to make sure their stuff's right going out there for that. Because, you know, to reiterate, obviously, you know, the front row locks himself in and the, the two fastest on speed lock himself in. So, you know, if you can go out there and prepare for that, then you've at least, you know, got a shot. So I don't know. It It, it was a little bit perplexing to me why that decision was made, but, you know, certainly hope that, moving forward, we, we see that return. And I don't know that we need practice for every single race, every single weekend. I, I certainly enjoy it and think it's a good thing, but certainly as it pertains to, you know, the biggest race, you, you've got to have the ability for teams to go out there and make sure they've got their best foot forward and every opportunity to try to you know go out there and, and have a good weekend. Okay, Mike, your follow-up? Well, and that's kind of the thing. Andy alluded to it. Uh, probably prior to the pandemic, the pendulum was too far in one direction where we had maybe too much practice time beforehand, and the focus really was on massaging the car and getting the car as fast and competitive as it possibly can be, and that was probably excessive. It was too much expense in terms of wear and tear on the equipment, crashing the cars every once in a while, et cetera, in practice, taking away driver's time for sponsor availability or, or whatever else they could do that didn't involve driving the race car. But I think we've gone too far in the other direction to where it's having a negative effect in other ways. Take the Daytona 500, for example. Chandler Smith and Connor Daly both had mechanical issues prior to qualifying. Uh, Chandler Smith didn't really get to put down a very competitive lap because of his, com- uh, his mechanical issues, and Connor Daly didn't get to qualify at all. Now, if they had had a practice session beforehand, there's a good chance that both of those cars, they could have identified and corrected those mechanical issues and been able to put a better effort forward in qualifying. Chandler Smith ended up missing the race, 
and Connor Daly, if not for a wreck that took out Austin Hill and Chandler Smith, Connor Daly would have most likely missed the race again because of these mechanical issues. So having that ability not to massage the car and really focus on the speed, but just like Andy said, make sure that your stuff is right. Make sure you didn't leave a packer in, in the springs when you thought you, uh, you had taken them all out or something didn't get connected properly, well, you know, whatever it is. Pre-race prep, even at the, this top-level professional racing like this, things get missed from time to time. And that practice session gives these teams the opportunity to make sure that what they think they did, they actually did, and the car is ready to go out there and safely compete and put their best foot forward to make the race and be competitive in that race. And I think that's really where the focus needs to be for practice going forward. Okay, Jay, do you have anything to add? I do, and uh, Sharon, you can just nod your head uh, as we go along here. But I think all four of us are in agreement, especially, and and I'm going to stick to specifically the Daytona 500. Uh, There needs to be some prior to that. You know, Andy mentioned biggest race of the year. Some of these teams, you know, that's the the one time a year they're going to take their shot because it is the Daytona 500. So I think it is very much needed there. Throughout the rest of the year, uh, I think it needs to be looked at and find that, like I mentioned, balance. And I know Michael relate to this of what, when something's on a pendulum, of uh, swinging too far one way, swinging too far back the other way, and not finding the middle. Um, military has a tendency to do that, the knee-jerk reaction and jump too far the other way. And I think by eliminating all of it or whatever was too far. Um, so I think they need to, to slow it down and find that middle balance. You know, Andy mentioned it. I was in favor of doing the practice slash qualifying together. Run them for 30 minutes, let them practice, and within that 30 minutes, take their fastest time out of that 30 minutes or whatever it be. Because um, that's a balance. You're going to qualify, so you're going to have cars on the track. Give them extra time and take the, the time from that. Uh, that's one I think would be a good balance. Um, so that's my opinion on it. And I do think, like I said, of maybe not every race that – I certainly I know back in the day, speed weeks used to be two weeks long. There were how many practice sessions. I understand cutting back. I fully understand that. But they certainly could have some throughout the week, uh, Monday or Tuesday, prior to the qualifying on Wednesday and the duels on Thursday. Okay. Andy, you get the last word. What do you have to add? Yeah, not much to really follow up on this one. I, I think the big the big takeaway from this is we all agreed on something, so that's a hot topic in itself. <laughs> that's that's right. That's the highlight needed to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an unusual occurrence. Okay, Mike, you get the next hot topic. Well, I was going to bring this up when we did our podcast last week, but we just simply didn't have enough time. There was a lot of stuff to talk about coming out of an off season. We didn't get to it, but. Uh, Kevin Harvick announced earlier in January that he is going to be retiring. 2023 will be his last time, his last full-time season as a driver. And that kind of hung in the air for a little while. And then during the broadcast for The Clash, it was announced that Kevin Harvick will be joining the Fox Sports booth as their full-time third booth person, as opposed to the current rotation that Fox has been doing last year as well as this year. Okay, Jay, your thoughts about that? Well, we've had a couple of topics uh, that we've discussed when it comes to things like this. It wasn't a secret. It just hadn't officially been announced. We know that Harvick's been looking at retiring for the past couple of years. 
Uh, I know we saw it with Eric Almirola. Said he was retiring and then came back. Uh, I don't think we'll see that now with this announcement. Obviously not with Kevin Harvick, but that possibility has been there for several years. And the link to him going to the Fox booth has been there. I know that's when they started going to the two-man booth with a rotating one. And I think they knew that. It was just a matter of waiting for the right time. They've been rotating that um, guest uh, guest broadcaster for that reason. They were saving that spot for Kevin Harvick. um, And now it's going to happen. And I think it's a great thing. I hate to see Kevin Harvick leave the sport. He is one of those of what you call a polarizing figure. I think he is good for the sport. I don't know if anybody else listened to his when he was doing his podcast. Happy Harvick, um, I thought was great. So I think he's going to bring a lot to the booth. He's going to bring a lot to the television coverage. And uh, I don't want to miscredit anybody here, uh, if it was Mike or Andy, he's talking about a current driver. It's one thing when you bring in, even say Tony Stewart, he hasn't been in the car in a while. Um, so to have somebody that is fresh out of the car and can specifically give you a current update as to what drivers are dealing with or what's going on, I think is a huge thing. Uh, and I know Larry McReynolds, and he still stays involved, you know, but he is outside of the crew chief box itself. So to have somebody that's fresh out of it, um, and can really give some deep insight. And I think Kevin Harvick does a great job in the booth. I'm happy to see him not go full retirement and disappear from the sport um, because I think he has a lot to bring and offer. Did we get Sharon stuck or could she? All right. Well, Mike brought it up. So Andy, if you can jump in here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was inevitable. I think Harvick is is 47 years old now. So I I think that it was probably around this time to see him retire, whether it was this year or the following year. We knew it was coming. Uh, I think the cool thing about this, unlike a lot of drivers in the sport, is he gets to go out on his own terms, gets to have a final full season, knowing he's going to retire at the end of the year so he can go out there and enjoy himself and, and try to go win races for the final time and possibly contend for a championship. It also gives the team a full year to figure out what's next. And it's good that he's going to be in the booth. I think that he has done an amazing job in his guest analyst roles already with Fox. He's certainly done uh, several Xfinity series broadcasts over the last several seasons and does an outstanding job with that. And to your point, Jay, um, and I completely agree, obviously being, fresh out of the next gen car brings a, a brand new perspective to the booth um, and, and brings a relevancy to the booth too, you know, and I also think that um, he'll be a good third compliment to the booth. We know that Clint can be pretty rambunctious and off the wall sometimes and, and that's okay. But, you know, I think that bringing an even keel voice to the booth and Kevin Harvick and certainly with, you know, the amount of success that he's had in his career, and, and being fresh off the track is, is really going to bring a lot to that booth. And I think a, a big void uh, will be filled by bringing him in there. So that's a big win for Fox and also a big win for the sport to, to keep Kevin involved and, and keep him uh, out there for fans to see and hear on a weekly basis. So I think it's a good thing and, and certainly uh, looking forward to, to seeing what he'll do in the booth, because I do think that there was a, a pretty big void there um, that Fox needed to fill and, I think Kevin's a really good uh, choice to put in that uh, that missing link. So, um, Sharon, if you're not back, I guess we'll bring it on over to Mike to, to finish it off. 
Yep, it's my the, turn. Uh, I'm sorry, I had a hard time with the mute button there. <laughs> my no worries. Uh, the Cole Custer move makes a whole lot more sense now. Remember, Cole Custer was removed from the Stuart Haas Racing number 41 in the Cup Series and sent back down to the Xfinity Series. And I think that happened because Stuart Haas Racing knew internally that Kevin Harvick was going to announce his retirement. And, and like Andy said and Jay said, this really wasn't a surprise. Kevin Harvick is 47 years old. He's been in the sport for a long, long time. We knew that he was on his way out. Over the past few years, it's been kind of surprising. He's, he's endured as long as he has. Uh, but it makes sense that Stuart Haas was able to push Cole Custer out of the Cup Series with Joe Custer, Cole's dad, being the president of, of Stuart Haas Racing. Uh, I'm sure it was a, a, along the lines of Austin Dillon being let go from Richard Childress Racing. So I think the long-term game plan here is Kevin Harvick will retire and then Cole Custer will end up back into the Cup Series in the four next year, getting another year of seasoning in, under his belt in the Xfinity Series, and hopefully he'll do better. But the performance of the 41 with Cole Custer in it the past two years was not great. Five total top tens over the past two seasons, zero top five, zero wins, and an average finish outside of the top 20. It was probably good to move Cole Custer to the Xfinity Series, get him that seasoning, let Kevin Harvick have his retirement season and then bring back a hopefully improved Cole Custer to make that four car even stronger. With regard to Kevin Harvick in the booth, Andy nailed it. Fox has really been rudderless over the past two years since Jeff Gordon left the booth to go work full-time at Hendrick Motorsports. Some of the guest announcers have been really, really good. Tony Stewart's a pretty good uh, guest announcer. Matt Kenseth was good. Dale Earnhardt Jr. was outstanding. But some have been not so good. Danica Patrick, she's coming back, and she wasn't great the last time. And there's been a few others. And it really has to do with the chemistry of the booth. Clint Boyer is he's a strong, exuberant personality. I'll, I'll put, that, put it that way to be diplomatic. But he needs – it's like bowling, right? Clint Boyer needs some bumpers, or he's going in the gutter. And that's how it goes with him. So he's got to have that straight man to, to counter off of him. And if you don't, then you've got the Clint Boyer clown show where it's Clint and his whack-jack friends having fun and taking away from the racing product. So I think Kevin Harvick is going to be a good counterbalance to Clint Boyer. Harvick can be funny, but he's got that dry sense of humor. And the good thing about Harvick is he is, yes, he's, he's going to be a driver in the booth, but he does play-by-play when they do the driver-only uh, broadcast. So Harvick is very much a broadcaster, well-trained in the art, and I think he's going to do a great job balancing Clint Boyer out in the booth and hopefully improve the product from Fox Sports year over year uh, because the past two years has been kind of rough. Uh, let me just say, in addition to what you were saying there, Mike, is that uh, this weekend I actually turned off the Fox I watched the Fox broadcast, but I turned on the radio, MRN radio, to listen to, or actually I think it was Sirius XM, uh, to listen to the race on the radio. There was so much that was covered on the radio that was not covered from the broadcast booth. Booth. Uh, I asked my brother, "Did did you, you? We heard it on the radio." I said, "Did you hear them even mention that on the Fox broadcast booth?" And he said, "No, not at all." So uh, I, 
I think that there is definitely room for improvement there. And one thing that Dale Earnhardt Jr. did so well is bringing that focus, keeping that focus on what's happening in the race. And uh, if Kevin Harvey can do that, that's going to be a great thing for the Fox broadcast. Jay, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I don't want to get too far in depth as far as what you were talking about, Sharon. There, There is a difference between radio coverage and TV coverage. Um, but I think the key word there, and I use it a lot, is balance. Uh, again, that, that pendulum, you've got to find the middle and the balance. And Andy and Mike both uh, and Sharon highlighted to it of uh, you enjoy it. Uh, sorry, Clint Boyer. I know Michael Waltrip's another one. I'm not partially agree with Mike here. I'm not going to use the words he used, but they're a little more exuberant. Um, but Kevin Harvick as, as that even keel. Uh, Mike said it, a uh, dry sense of humor. There, there's humor there. You just got to understand it and, and hang with it. But I also look at from the balance perspective, and Andy kind of hit on this. He is a Daytona 500 winner. He is a champion. He has been a truck series owner. Uh, and I know we got some other things I uh, might get to later tonight with uh, owning a series. Uh, so very invested in the sport. The other thing I look at, though, is he is not a company yes man. If he's got an opinion, whether it's contrary to NASCAR or not, he's going to share it. So I think that is an important thing. Of Rather than everybody saying, hey, life is great, it's rainbows and puppies and rainbows, as they like to say, Kevin Harvick will say, hey, this isn't going right, or this is, you know, they're making a mistake here, we need to look at this. So I think that, too, is a great balance that he brings then of, hey, even within the inside, you know, there's always improvement. Take a look at this. Um, and I think that's a huge factor. I know there, again, we, we've seen some issues. Maybe we think Kevin Harvick is a little too outspoken at times in the way he goes about it. But it is needed to a certain level, and I think he will bring that to the, to the broadcast as well. Okay, Andy, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> to, to follow up on a point that Mike made, actually, um, you know, with regards to really what happens next after Harvick leaves the four car, um, you know, I think it, it could be logical to see Custer get the opportunity to come back. Um, and, and quite honestly, you know, I, I think that the move they made with him is, is perfect. I, I'm, for one, I'm really excited to see him back in the Xfinity car this year. Um, I think he's going to win a lot of races and probably have the kind of um, refreshing resurgent year that he really needs. It's been a bit of a down couple of years for him. So um, hopefully that's what it takes to, to you know, get him uh, back up to speed and hopefully back in the cup series, you know, but that's specifically to Harvick. Obviously I think that um, really couldn't ask for a better third person to go in the booth. And I think that, you know, there's certainly been, at least from what I've seen, some criticism about Fox broadcasting in recent years. And I think perhaps uh, this is the kind of move that the, the that they needed to make that will hopefully uh, improve their product, um, you know, for race broadcast moving forward. So certainly a, a really good thing overall for, for everybody. Okay, Mike, you get the final word. Yeah, I for one really hope Kevin Harvick goes over to Fox and, and lays the whip on some people. I remember the uh, the driver's only broadcast from last year. I want to say it was Charlotte. I could be wrong. It doesn't really matter. But Fox has a really nasty habit of taking the camera and pointing it at something completely irrelevant right when the, the, the booth is starting to talk about something interesting that's happening. And they tried to do it with the drivers in the booth, Kevin Harvick being the, the, the play-by-play guy. And 
you, Kevin kind of was on the hot mic of, hey, of, of yelling at the guys who were running the camera of, hey, you can't do this to us. You are ruining the broadcast, basically. So I really hope that Kevin does get over to Fox Sports and lays the law down on these guys about getting the camera where it needs to be and getting the focus of the broadcast back on the racing. I love Mike Joy, but he kind of digresses into the, hey, remember when stuff a bit too much. And Clint Boyer, well, we've already discussed Clint Boyer. So having Kevin Harvick laser focused on the racing on the racetrack is what I really look forward to, and I hope that's what we see next year from Fox Sports. All right. We'll let that be the final word. And, Jay, you're up next. Well, Sharon, I know we're coming up on, on uh, close to the 9.30, East, or 9.30 Central, 10.30 Eastern mark here. Uh, did you want me to try and do the announcement, or you got enough built up in If you wouldn't mind, I would appreciate it. All right. Uh, for first-time listeners, I'd like to make this announcement, and I'm going to try and remember the best from Sharon here. At 10.30 Eastern, 9.30 Central, we do go off the air, but keep recording. So if you're listening to the live broadcast, come back up you can pick it up uh, right where you left off because we will rec- continue recording and in, in, in the conversation here for normally about 30 more minutes if you're listening to it on the podcast for the first time it'll be a seamless transition there just wanted to give that warning we may go off mid-sentence here in just a minute um, but we will continue recording so make sure you come back and listen to the podcast and with that uh, next topic then uh, I know we had this on our on our list uh, here going into it track house racing uh specifically i think alex bowman was in sometime throughout this week we got some contract extensions uh daniel suarez and ross chastain both for we're track house racing and alex bowman with hendrick motorsports i think those were the three that got announced this week going into daytona they uh, announced the re-signing uh solid long-term or multi-year deals um, but also the timing of it. And I'll let Andy hit on that because I think that was one of his comments. The timing of it here prior to the season versus mid-season or after. Okay, Andy, your thoughts. Yeah, you know, good segue there, Jay, because, you know, one of the points I was going to make about this is I think uh, this is huge, huge for those teams and huge for those drivers to get these deals done before the year even begins. And really this is um, – somewhat unprecedented usually you'll you'll see these kinds of deals done um with the sport's biggest names and not to say these aren't big names but uh it's interesting to me that um you know both track house drivers alex bowman and then briscoe all got deals done before the year even started you don't usually see that many get done this early so um i, I find it to be very significant from the standpoint of of stability and, and it allows these teams and drivers to really just focus on the task at hand, which is to win races and make the playoffs. Um, I have seen over the years that any time a driver is in a contract year and it gets to be that mid-season point or even later in the season, it can be a distraction. And they might not admit it, but it is uh, because you're really focused on what am I going to do in the future? And you're, you're best focused on, you know, the the on-track racing and and that that laser focus that it takes to try to go out there and and compete at a high level. So um, for both track house drivers, Daniel Suarez and and Ross Chastain, big deal to get those deals done. Um, They know what they're doing for at least a year or two in the future. Same with Alex Bowman. I believe he was a 
a several-year deal along with sponsor allies. So um, that's a big deal. And then Briscoe was a multi-year deal as well. Um, obviously, they locked him down, um, you know, I think in light of the fact that Harvick's retiring. So these are, you know, some big long-term deals here that really are, are good from a, a stability standpoint for the team and the driver, and it allows them probably to put more focus on their everyday job and, and trying to win and, and, and go out there and make the playoffs. And so, you know, it's just a big deal to get those deals done before the year even begins. Something we don't always see very often, but certainly good for those drivers and teams because now they don't have to stress about it. Mike, your thoughts? I think Andy really nailed it. The timing here, getting it done early and often, I think is really important here. I think a lot of teams, they got a little bit of a warning shot fired at them last year, seeing what happened to Richard Childress Racing with Tyler Reddick. I think a lot of these teams learned the lesson of, if you want to retain your top talent, get the ink on paper before a guy like Denny Hamlin swoops in and steals your top guy before you have a chance to negotiate a contract with him. So I think that that's part of the reason why we're seeing some of these longer-term deals for the top talent at these teams, Alex Bowman, Daniel Suarez, Ross Chastain, Chase Briscoe, all of them being signed to multi-year deals with their teams. I think part of that is because these teams know that these drivers are outstanding and they're talented drivers, and if, if, if we don't sign them, somebody else will. And I think that's what's leading to some of these long-term contracts, which is great for the sport. I really hate the, the – I understand sponsorship is what it is, and there are factors that go into why you might sign a driver to a one-year-only kind of a deal. I get it. But I also hate that stringing along thing of, well, we signed them to a one-year deal, so all the drama that we just had – like Brad Keselowski, for example – all the drama at Team Penske with Brad Keselowski, it repeated again, all over again the next year, and then Brad ended up leaving to to uh, to join Roush Fenway and, and turn into Roush Fenway Keselowski Racing, which good for him, but from a standpoint of, of stability and, like Andy said, a distraction, it's a mess. So I really do like seeing these drivers signed to long-term contracts, especially great drivers like Alex Bowman, Chase Briscoe, Ross Chastain, and Daniel Suarez. All of them deserve long-term contracts with their with their teams, and all of them, I think, are going to do great things in those cars. All right. Well, I hear the uh, the statics. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, I hear the static, so I know you're trying to key it up there, but um, we're off off live there, so uh, we'll see how many uh, follow up on this, but I'm going to agree with Mike, uh, almost 100% there. The, there are some key things that have been learned. He mentioned, he took them right out of my mouth, Tyler Reddick being signed, uh, kind of signed out from underneath Richard Childress. Andy mentioned it, the distraction. When you talk about Brad Keselowski or even Kyle Busch, um, that that was a bigger story throughout the year than the, than the racing. So um, I know that Mike mentioned sponsorship. I think one of them pairing Alex Bowman with Ally was a key factor there. Trackhouse racing, I think, was just the knowing where they're at and what these two, Ross Chastain and um, Daniel Suarez, have meant to that team in building it and what they want to continue to build. So locking in that stability, having that faith. So we talked about the, the note on uh, Ricky Stenhouse's uh, team or on the car from the team. 
we believe they're in it together. So, you know, there might not have been sponsorship driven as much, but it was just the, the loyalty and what they're building um, and making that commitment together. So I do think that, that it's a big thing. And as Mike, like I said, I got to agree with him a hundred percent. Things were learned over the last couple of years. Hey, you know, we can't let somebody get away or, or you know, let it be a distraction and then blow up and, and become a bigger story than the racing, put our focus on racing. So I think that is huge that it happened, as everybody said, prior to the season and isn't the story throughout the year. Okay, Andy, your follow-up? Yeah, something that, that Mike and Jay have already said that, you know, I can reiterate. I think that, you know, teams had to learn a hard lesson. Specifically, Richard Childress had to learn a hard lesson last year um, with, with Tyler Reddick. Um, you know, I think that that deal kind of came out of nowhere and took – a lot of people by surprise, including Richard Childers racing. Um, and I, and, you know, obviously Reddick's an incredible talent and it's no surprise that, uh, 2311 racing would want him, but I think it really caught everyone off guard. And I think that, you know, teams have had to look at it and say, all right, you know, if we really want to retain, you know, our top guys, we need to do something about it and, and, you know, retain them for long-term deals. And so, um, that's probably why you've seen more of that happen this year. And that's not to say that, you know, there's drivers that won't be dealing with contract negotiations throughout the year. But in my recent memory, I don't know that we've seen this many deals get done prior to the start of the season. So, um, which I think is important for those, uh, drivers and teams because it just eliminates those distractions long-term. But, um, yeah, I think lessons were learned, certainly, and, you know, especially with, with what happened in the Reddick deal. So, um, obviously, good for those those people to get that done. And, you know, you know, you may actually start to see silly season and contract negotiations and deals being done earlier in the year, um, you know, as a result of, of that so that, you know, they'll try to prevent drivers from maybe making a move that um, they weren't anticipating. Okay, Jay, you get the final word. Well, and and another one to throw in there, uh, I know I didn't jump in on it on, on the last topic. It's kind of tied into this one too, though, is Ryan Priest. Stuart Haas of racing saw that talent, wanted him. They didn't necessarily have the car for him yet. Gave him the, uh, what do they call it, substitute driver. I don't like that word, but uh, reserve driver, I think is how they listed it. He had some truck opportunities, some Xfinity opportunities. But then when the time came, he was given that cup uh, opportunity. And I say that ties in with uh, moving Cole Custer over to the Xfinity side, uh, probably going to be back, as everybody believes anyway, into the uh, number four here with uh, Kevin Harvick retiring. But I know Tony Stewart was on that half of the ownership, one that really said, hey, we got to give Ryan Priest the opportunity here and now. He's earned it. He's deserving of it. Uh, Cole Custer, as we kind of feel, you know, maybe did need a little more seasoning. Uh, the cup was a bigger step. He did get his win, uh, win in his rookie year, but really hadn't delivered top results that we expected. So uh, a little more seasoning, the Xfinity series uh, can't hurt him. And again, Sharon, I've talked about this all the way along from the beginning, the first story of Greg Van Alst. Learn from that. Take that step back learn from it, and come back stronger. And I think Cole Custer certainly has that opportunity. So that's another one, though, that you're seeing teams sign a driver as a reserve driver. 
Uh, Alex Bowman is one that went through it. And now getting that contract and being partnered with Ally, that security, because he took that step and said, okay, if I got to be the sim guy or a backup driver, take that role and deserve that spot now. So I know he's one that people have looked at and maybe being replaced. Okay. They're not doing that. They got their confidence in him and faith in him. Okay. Um, I guess that's the last word on that topic. Andy, you get to bring up the next hot topic. Yeah, I'm kind of looking through here, and I'm not really sure I'm seeing much. Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about? Mike? Well, I was yeah, I was going to bring up uh, – we didn't get – another one from prior to the season we didn't get to talk about, but Bob Pockers reported that NASCAR has strengthened the rules on several different issues that they had last season regarding interfering with pit stops, altercations on pit road between – uh, guys in cars, as well as physical altercations between drivers and other NASCAR members outside of the cars. Long story short, it looks like they saw some things last year that they really didn't like, but the rule book wasn't strongly worded enough to give them the enforcement options that they wanted. And it looks like those enforcement options have now been uh, codified into the rule book to make it a little bit more uh, strongly worded for what NASCAR can do to hopefully discourage some of this behavior we saw last year. Well, Andy, we saw one of them, Mike. Oh, okay, go ahead, Andy. I'm sorry, I was going to go to Andy. Oh, that's okay. Um, yeah, I took a brief look at this a while back when it came out. Um, you know, and I guess um, it's probably good that these rules are a bit more defined, um, you know, from the standpoint of, of teams now knowing exactly what's okay and what's not. So um, I'd have to go back and, and completely reread this to, to know for sure what it was, but Obviously, if you look at, you know, some of the gray areas in the rule book, teams will abuse those gray areas, unfortunately. So NASCAR obviously felt that it was time to maybe um, put some stuff in more black and white so that it's more understandable. And, um, you know, hopefully these are um, areas that aren't such a an issue moving forward. Okay, Jay. Well, the biggest one that I take from it is the on-track, especially with the car. And we've already seen this implemented, and I'm trying to think back. Uh, I know it was Bubba Wallace that was involved, uh, what the penalty was at the clash. But, again, after being spun out, expressing his frustration with his car on the track, even though it was under caution and just towards one car. Uh, he also, unfortunately, was the one involved last year with Kyle Larson, as far as a physical confrontation on the track and did receive a one-race suspension. Now, with that, though, I don't want to say I'm on the fence in the middle, but I know for those of us that have been long-term race fans, again, this NASCAR was really exploded with TV coverage of a fight in the infield, Ken Squire, and there's a fight. Um, you know, we got, we've gone beyond that. We're not in those days anymore but I also want the drivers to be able to express themselves. So I'll go back to my keyword uh, for life in general, not just here tonight, but balance. And I think they do need to find a balance. I am all in favor of them restricting the whole using your car as a weapon, as Mike likes to say, because uh, that's dangerous. Even under caution, uh, we've just seen things go awry that way. You know, now 
off the track, uh, the off track scuffle, they're they're get more into a gray area. Um, and I think back to hockey. Uh, if both players throw their gloves down, want to go at it, they'll let them go at it uh, until one of them goes down. You know, we've seen that a couple of times here. Uh, I think back, I was trying to think who it was last year. One of them didn't even realize they were in a fight until they were laying on the ground, as Mike said. Um, so there's a line. I understand that, and they got to protect, uh, again, not just the two drivers, but fans or crewmen that are involved. I know that's always a big thing. If the two drivers want to have it out, I'm all in favor of it. You, you want to do it, it's on YouTube, you know. But it tends to be that crewmen get involved and the track officials and somebody just standing by happens to get knocked down or whatever. So they do have to corral it. But I just don't want to see them go too far where drivers aren't allowed to express themselves. That's my only concern with that. And I think overall NASCAR does a good job. I know a few years back it kind of went the other direction. They said, boys, have at it. Y'all handle anything you want your way out on the track or otherwise. And we saw that. And that didn't go well because we saw some nasty wrecks come of it. So I agree. I understand. They kind of want to bring that back in. Um, but I also don't want to see them just completely stifle the drivers where they're afraid to speak their mind or express their uh, feelings. Okay, Mike, your your thoughts? Well, Jay kind of hit on it, uh, no pun intended, where there's a big difference between two guys who are mutually involved in a fight where they both know that they're fighting and they want to be in a fight. For example, uh, the, the 79 Daytona 500, that's a, that's a classic. But more recently, uh, Harrison Burton versus Noah Gregson or Ty Gibbs versus Sam Mayer. Both of those are examples of two guys who know that they're in a fight. They seem to be okay that they're in a fight, and that's, that's what they want to do in that moment. Whether it's a good idea or not, that's a completely different discussion. But the other example that I think is not okay was Bubba Wallace versus Kyle Larson. Kyle Larson very clearly did not want to fight. First shove, Bubba gives him, fair game. If Kyle comes back swinging, it's a fight. Kyle very obviously tried to de-escalate the situation, and Bubba kept coming. That's over the line. The other one, the example that Jay brought up was Austin Hill versus Myatt Snyder, with Austin Hill just cold cocking Myatt Snyder on pit road. Over the line, I would say. Again, that's a guy who doesn't know he's in a fight until he's got the little tweeter birds swinging around his head. That's probably over the line. Um, same thing with the on the racetrack stuff. There's a big difference between like what Denny Hamlin did at Pocono, leaving Ross Chastain absolutely no room coming out of the corner, and Ross happens to end up in the fence. That's a big difference between doing that and right rearing somebody right into the outside wall. Huge difference there. Ramming another car on pit road, never acceptable, things like that. And I think that's where NASCAR really needed to step in, clarify the rules, and make the penalties a little bit more stringent to dissuade that over-the-line aggressive attacking kind of behavior rough racing hard racing that's fine i've got no problem with it guys who want to you know one-on-one settle the differences on pit road with with their fists okay probably not the best idea but again i don't have a problem with it but when you cross that line into now you're attacking somebody using your car as a weapon trying to start a fight with somebody who clearly doesn't want to fight things like that i think are over the line and i think nascar is right to address them Okay. Uh, Andy, before you uh, say anything, I just want to point out that after the Xfinity Series race, there was an altercation between Jeffrey Earnhardt and uh, Parker Kligerman. So that was already handled off the track 
and by the haulers, I guess. Uh, so you already seen some uh, change there. Andy, your follow-up. <clears throat> yeah, I think that, you know, more definitive rules needed to to, um, to take place. You know, when we've seen some pretty aggressive retaliation and intentional moves happen on the racetrack, and, and I don't think any of us are a fan of that. I, I know we've had some strong words in the past as it pertains to, to those kind of actions. And so um, I'm glad to see that be a bit of a deterrent um, I don't think any of us like seeing that stuff. So, um, you know, if there's things that need to be said and discussed, it, it should be um, off the racetrack and certainly not in the form of a race car being used as a weapon, you know, and we've seen some some pretty questionable things happen over the last couple, three years. And so um, the fact that NASCAR is willing to crack down on that, I applaud that. I think it's the right decision. And, and hopefully we'll see less of those um, kind of storylines this year, and, and you know, maybe I'm sure there will be some accidents and incidents and some disagreements, but you know, you hope that it can be handled in the form of a discussion, um, you know, on on pit road or in the garage, and not in the form of um, right rearing somebody. I think uh, we all agree that that's a, a pretty um, a pretty bad thing to do, and also pretty unsafe. So obviously, um, you know, hopefully that's less of a storyline, and, and hopefully. Um, you know, they can handle it in, in a more civil manner uh, moving forward. And, and to your point, Sharon, obviously, you know, Jeffrey Earnhardt was upset with, um, you know, what he felt was a, a a bad racing accident with him and, and Parker Gligerman, but, you know, they, they talked about it. Instead of, you know, right. instead, instead of a retaliatory incident on the track or even a fight, they, they, they had some words and talked about it, you know, and that's really the best case scenario. Okay, Jay, your follow-up? Well, uh, what do we got left? Ten minutes? Uh, we need to wrap this up because I am agreeing with Mike way too often here tonight. Uh, <laughs> you know, he, he put on it. <laughs> two examples. Both drivers involved. I want to fight. You want to fight. Let's fight. Uh, that's, like I said, that's on them if that's what they choose to do. Um, he gave a detailed description of, of the Kyle Larson incident from last year. You're right. Kyle Larson was like, hey, I, I don't want to do this. Go away. You know, I'll walk away and still got, you know, that second shove of retaliation. So that's where I think that line is. The only thing I will say in this uh, from the Austin Hill, and I thank you. I couldn't remember who the other driver was involved. Austin Hill, Myatt Schneider. The only thing with that is from the video and what we saw from coverage was what appeared to be a one-sided deal. There is rumor and uh, people that say they heard Austin Hill say, hey, go away or I'm going to knock you out. So if he was forewarned and didn't take that warning, uh, that's the only defense I can give there. If he was warned and said, hey, you don't get out of my face, I'm going to get you out of my face. If that warning was given and not adhered to, again, then it's on their own. But that one did appear to be, as, as Mike said, of he realized he was in a fight after he was on the ground and uh, looking for his uh, mouthpiece, as they say, going back to Mike Tyson with the Buster Douglas knockout. Um, and th- that's one of those of, I agree then, that, you know, if the one guy is saying, hey, uh, this isn't how I want to do it. Uh, I did see the replay of the Jeffrey Earnhardt Parker Kligerman. I don't know if there was even any shoving or uh, touching. There was some finger pointing for sure, loud discussion, um, but it was handled relatively calmly. So, um, I think there's a line, and, and I'm okay with that. Like I said, I want these drivers to be able to express their frustration. You know, 
I, I go back to I was always okay with the helmet throw or the, the uh, Hans device. We've seen other things like that. I was always okay with that because there it was. It wasn't a big damage. You get into using the car. I'm with uh, Andy and Mike and Sharon. You know, that's a bad, bad way to go about it. Then it's no longer about the two drivers because if that car gets out of control, especially on pit road, you're talking about crewmen, whatever, on the track, whether you mean to or not, other cars to get involved that have nothing to do with anything. Um, so that's a, that's a line you want to establish and not let them cross. And that's where I say we saw that at the clash already this year with Bubba Wallace. Um, even though it was just a tap under caution, it was more than what NASCAR said, hey, we don't want to see that anymore. Don't do that. So I like the fact that they did hard draw that line and are going to stand behind it. Okay, uh, Mike, your your final thoughts. Well, this is really going to come down to what's going to happen when when somebody tests this. Bubba already kind of he touched the hot stove a little bit at the clash, and he felt a little bit of heat. What we're going to have to see is what what happens the first time somebody goes and grabs that hot stove, because we know it's going to happen, and we've seen before with the race manipulation penalties, NASCAR finally enforced a race manipulation penalty last season, but we came up with a list of probably half a dozen to 10 incidents where teams or drivers or a combination thereof, they touched that hot stove with regard to race manipulation and didn't get burned. So hopefully NASCAR is consistent and applies the penalty structure uh, consistently and, 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 enthusiastically when it comes to to enforcing this penalty on these behaviors because this isn't just race manipulation. This is potentially getting somebody hurt, not just drivers, not just fit crews, but anybody. The Kyle Larson incident at Las Vegas getting right reared into the fence, we've seen plenty of times where cars have hit the outside wall and things have gone over or through the fence, and now you're hurting the fans, and that's just – that's the kind of stuff that can happen with this. And it's, there's, there's a racing, there's a certain risk that comes with racing, but we don't need to add into it the unnecessary roughness penalty in the NFL, for example. This is a sport that's built on, on hitting people, but there's a time and a place to do it. And in NASCAR, accidents happen, but intentional wrecks, that's where the NASCAR needs to draw the line, and I really hope they're firm in doing so. Okay, we'll let that be the final word there, and I think we're, I don't know, Jay, did you have one quick one that we can do before we sign off? Yeah, I think we can get one round in it of, uh, Sharon, you had put this up, and for some reason my phone's not working, (laughs) I can't pull it up, but uh, try and hit the ones involved. Dale Jr., Kevin Harvick, Jeff Burton, and I'm missing somebody, buying the Cars Tour Late Model Series and their involvement in that. Okay, Mike, your thoughts about that? That's in the Cars uh, series, and it was, uh, let me see if I can get to it, Hot Topics. I'm uh, looking Jeff right Burton, at it if Kevin you want me to, uh, to go. And Justin Marks. Dale Jr., Jeff Burton, Kevin Harvick, and Justin Marks all investing uh, in that Cars Tour for 2023. I think it was a great move. Uh we know that Dale Jr. has been very active in the late model world, really his entire driving career, but even more so since he's retired from full-time driving. That's where Josh Berry came from. He's a guy that Dale Jr. knows from racing his late model cars. And Josh Berry obviously has done great things in the Xfinity Series, driving for Dale Earnhardt in the Xfinity Series. Kevin Harvick's been very active in trying to preserve local tracks 
coming from Bakersfield, California, he's seen a lot of local tracks where he grew up racing closed down, whether it's because of real estate development, noise complaints, or all these other factors that go into uh, a racetrack closing. Kevin Harvick has been very vocal about the danger that local racing is facing from these issues. And I think getting involved in, in a large late model series like the Cars Tour, I think is a great opportunity for Kevin Harvick to really put some force behind his efforts to keep these local tracks going. Justin Marks, we've seen what he's done with Trackhouse Racing in the Cup Series, really a transformational organization in terms of what they've done. Uh, just in the very short time that they've been in the sport, they are a championship. I, Ross Chastain finished second in the points last year. Phenomenal. And just the second full-time season as a NASCAR Cup Series team, Justin Marks has been outstanding in the NASCAR Cup Series, and I think he's a perfect fit for joining in on the Cars Tour. And Jeff Burton is one of those quiet, understated kind of guys, but he's got some very deep roots and fingers that run into a lot of different pies in the racing world. And I think Jeff Burton's connections and influence there, I think, is really going to be beneficial to make this a, a successful project. So I'm really excited to see what they're doing here. And Hopefully it opens more doors for more racers, part-time amateur-type racers to get into racing, keep these local tracks open, get butts into seats in the grandstands, and get local people excited about seeing racing again. Okay, Jay, we'll let you have something to say here, and then we'll do our roundtable. Well, I I should have not brought up another topic because i got to agree with Mike. I mean, he laid out a lot there. <laughs> Great for the sport, I mean, as an industry, grassroots racing. And the four involved, as he mentioned, Jeff Burton, there's a history of short track racing, especially in the Carolinas. Dale Jr., again, his investment in the sport as a whole, giving those opportunities. Uh, as I mentioned, Kevin Harvick, as an owner, where it comes to truck series, being a talent agency, um, brings that to it and is another one that is very adamant about the local track racing. And then Justin Marks. And I think this comes into play again from the business aspect side. And what he's not just bringing in a NASCAR Cup Series team. It's a brand, you know, whether they go into the IndyCar, the uh, other series doing the crossover. It's a brand and what they, that they're trying to build. So I think that combination and just as a whole for the racing industry, grassroots racing, the next generation of racing, you know, and that's what Junior's looking at opportunities such as Josh Berry. So I think it is a really great thing for the sport across the board from top to bottom. Okay. Let's go ahead and do our round table now. Andy, we'll start with you. Uh, Yeah, for me, it's um, CB14 fan on on Twitter. And just, I wanted to touch on the topic real quick, if you don't mind. Um, Sure. I didn't really know much. I didn't really know much about the cars tour. Um, but I do now because of, you know, Kevin Harvick, Justin Marks, uh, Jeff Burton, and uh, and Dale Jr. You know, I think that's a huge, um, a huge jolt for that series. I think it brings big awareness to that series and probably will help them gain a lot in popularity. So um, certainly, I think it's a, a huge investment and a huge step in the right direction for that late model series and probably will gain. Um, popularity and interest just because of those names being associated with it. Um, good to be back, Sharon. I've, I've enjoyed doing this for several years now, and I'm excited about this year and um, thankful to be doing uh, these radio shows again. It's always a lot of fun. Yes, indeed. I've got my fingers crossed for Thursday night. I've talked to Andy about uh, filling in for Jay 
on Thursday night. So I'm keeping my fingers, toes, and eyeballs crossed uh, that you can make it, Andy. Yeah, certainly the plan, and uh, should know probably pretty early on Thursday. So uh, we'll we'll hope that that works out. Okay, uh, Mike, and and I apologize if I skipped you, Andy. I certainly didn't mean to do that. Oh, that's okay. No problem. Sure, it's going to be Mike. Mike underscore is all on Twitter. Mike double underscore O on Reddit. Great to be back with everyone. It was great talking to Andy throughout our racing this weekend. I, I really did miss our race day chat, so it's really good to uh, to have Andy there to talk about the race as it happens live. Um, sporadic availability, as always, for me for these radio shows. I should be available Thursday. Hopefully, Sharon, you're feeling a little bit better as well, and we can have a good radio show on Thursday. Uh, track availability this year. I know I'm going to Talladega. I know I'm going to North Wilkesboro. I'm not sure about anywhere else. I'll keep you posted, that's for sure. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, Jay? Uh, you can follow me on social media, MoparMJ8 on Twitter and Instagram, Michael Hoosman on uh, Facebook, and to save Sharon the, uh, the the strain on her voice, thank Mike and Andy for doing so much talking tonight so she didn't have to, myself included, as always. But, um, Sharon, we appreciate you even you know giving us the opportunity. I know you were feeling a little under the weather. You and I did the preview show, and that took a lot out of you. So to let us kind of have at it here in Hot Topics. Um, did a good job, too, since we all agreed didn't have a whole lot where you had to intervene and, and break things down or step in with the rule book of how we're behaving. So uh, help you out in that favor as well. <laughs> well, we've got a great team here at Pamper Racing, and I, I'm enjoying the crew that we have and uh, certainly looking forward to the 2023 season. Uh, I can't wait for the next race at Auto Club Speedway and uh, the next radio show. Uh, when we preview on Thursday and review on Monday. So that's our routine here. And uh, we thank all of our fans for tuning in, whether you're listening to the live broadcast or the podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you. So with that, I guess we'll call it a night tonight, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again on Thursday. Good night, everybody. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.